welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 60, The Bank Holiday Murders, a one-on-one interview with Tom Westcott. Hello, Tom. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Hey, Jonathan. What's going on? Oh, not not a lot. I'm happy to be uh, back in the podcasting chair after a pretty long hiatus. So, Yeah, when was the last episode? The last episode that I recorded... There were there were two podcasts that I recorded that for one reason or another never made it on the air. One was a one-on-one with Mike Covell and another was a Titanic episode. Uh and that would have been back um last year uh around the anniversary of the Titanic disaster. And since then Allie has kind of taken the reins and she's recorded three podcast primer episodes with guests, one of which is in the editing process and it's going to be released. So it's been quite a while. Honestly, the move to California almost killed RipperCast. The Midwest uh, is more beneficial to sitting, uh, you know, (laughs) sitting around your house uh, recording a podcast than living in sunny Southern California, you know. That's good. That's all we do here. (laughs) (laughs) For those who don't know, uh, Jonathan and I are near neighbors. Um, I am in uh, the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. And Jonathan, where are you at? I'm in Topeka, Kansas. Yeah, we're just, uh, you know, relative. We could uh, drive to each other in a matter of a few hours. So, uh, which is interesting in Ripperology because for me personally, uh, usually when I'm talking to someone, exchanging with someone, you know, they're across an ocean. Right. Uh, and uh, and even here in the states, they're usually in California or New York or somewhere like that. So it's it's good to see that Ripperology has a, a midwestern United States present presence. How twenty first century is that? That two guys who've never met are sitting around on a Saturday talking about a crime, a series of crimes that occurred in a different country in the century before they were born. That's uh, that's, that's right. first century for you. Yeah. In fact, I'll admit that I've only met one person interested in the case to the extent that they posted on Casebook and JTR forums face-to-face in my entire life. Uh, And that was David Gates, who lived in Lawrence, Kansas, before he moved over to the UK. Uh, And Lawrence is a college town just about 20 miles down the road from me. So uh, we uh, met and had dinner uh, uh, quite a few years ago. Um, Really? Yeah. Um, but other than that, um, it, it's uh, internet only for the most part for us uh, Americans. That's exactly right. Yeah, uh, I'm s- sad to say I've never been to uh, to London. I've been asked that question since my book came out. You know, have you gone down there? Have you taken the tours? And uh, regrettably, the answer is no. I have not uh, as of yet. Um, I look forward to it, though, absolutely, especially since so many of the people I know are indeed tour guides. I know more people in the U.K. than I probably know in in the United States. We're we're sad people. We're sad. (laughs) Now, Tom and I, uh, Tom probably doesn't remember this because he he, uh, has so much other stuff going on, but I, I first ran into you back on Ivor Edwards' forum. No, I remember that, yes. Uh, yeah, the original JTR uh, forums.co.uk. No, it was .com, wasn't it? Was that .co? I, mean, there was a dot, I, thought, I think it was a .co.uk. 
It was okay. Yes, or maybe it was JTRForumsUK.com. I don't know. There was some no, some no, kind no, of UK. Changeit.com. Yeah, um, and that would have been over ten years ago, I think. I think. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you are right because uh, um, Howard uh, started his, I think, oh five. So it probably would have been at least ten. Yeah, it would have been oh four, oh three that you and I would have first spoken. Right. Yeah. Now you you had um, been in, uh, involved in like we had just mentioned on Ivor Edwards' site um, for many years. Why don't you explain to us how you first became interested in the Jack the Ripper case? And also, I wanted to bring out the fact that in reading your book, and and I first got this feeling when I read the. Uh, freebie that was posted on Amazon was, I was thinking, well, Tom's book is really one of the first, along with maybe Robert House's book, uh, about the case that it, that I have a feeling is born of the internet generation, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, other writers who are publishing, who have published books within the last couple of years, um, do post on the message boards, some of them more frequently than others. Um, we've had books published by people who never post on the message boards, or very seldom. Neil Sheldon comes to mind. Um, we have niche books from people who are involved in the message boards, like Philip Hutchison and Rob Clack's work, that and Andrew Firth, the m more uh, about uh, the urban landscape of the East End than the particulars of the murder cases. Mm -hmm. uh, but your book um, is really the first one I could think of from so, from someone who is hevel, has heavily been active in the internet message board community and in the discussion forums since the very beginning. Well, uh, I, you know, uh, uh, Carolyn Morris, a.k.a. Kaz, of course, uh, co-authored uh, a book on the uh, internal workings of the diary camp, and um, you know, a, a wonderful book, I might add. And she was there before me when I can, when I first started on the casebook dot org. Uh, it, it would have been uh, two years, almost two years into the existence of that website when I came along, and she was one of the the first people to greet me on there and and uh, to exchange, and so. Uh, uh, and, and she is, of course, still very active on the boards. So she predates me uh, as far as far as people who uh, were around in that era who have published books. She comes to mind. Neil Sheldon was an early hero of mine. His uh, original edition of Jack the Ripper and His Victims uh, was one of the very first Ripper books that I, I, I purchased. Uh, now, ha having said that, my history in the case... Uh, if we want to take it all the way back to when I was a, a child, I was very interested in hard rock, heavy metal music. Kiss is my favorite band. Uh, and I was very interested in horror films. I'm still interested in these things. In fact, I just spent um, a lot of money to get fourth row tickets to see Kiss this summer with the UK's own Def Leppard, I might add. And uh, it's not the so, real kiss, though. We should. Uh, it's they, the real kiss. It's they, they've replaced. They've put yeah. some uh, some uh, some actors in the roles of oh, uh, Catman. Right. And, and <laughs> be fair, yeah, but uh, you know, I saw here. I was in the horror films and heavy metal, and 
for young people in that that time, it was an you know we there was a fascination with serial killers in the eighties. This was um, after Ted Bundy, but before Jeffrey Dahmer. It was in that era. Uh, it, it, it was something new that was dropped on the American conscious. Uh, this idea of um, you know the slasher films we saw in the theaters were in fact coming to life. They were real. Uh, these kind of people were out there, and, and you might know some of them. And, uh, you know, I was struck, I remember, by seeing a photograph of John Wayne Gacy uh, standing next to uh, uh, the First Lady of the United States, you know, uh, Rosalind Carter. And, you know, and this is, this is one of the most notorious serial killers of our time. And, you know, look at the life he was living while doing that. Look at Ted Bundy. Uh, you know, who ran a campaign for a governor while killing women. You know, these things uh, fascinated me. These characters fascinated me. Jack the Ripper did not. He did not fascinate me at that time. I thought of him as old, old school, you know, not not interesting. Although I thought the name was cool, of course. How could you not? But uh, he didn't interest me. How I found the Ripper was after years of reading... Uh, true crime books, and, and now now we're going into the 90s here. Um, I was dating a girl who was an avid reader, and we would go to uh, this uh, large used bookstore near near our house, uh, and it's still there, and they had a, a big horror novel section, horror book section, so I went to buy some horror novels. Somebody had misplaced, uh, some customer had picked up a book from the true crime section and set it, in the horror section, they decided not to buy it, in other words. And their choice not to buy it would, would prove fortuitous to me because while looking for a particular book, there it was. It was a paperback copy of Dr. David Abrahamson's um, Murder and Madness, The Secret Life of Jack the Ripper. Arguably one of the worst uh, nonfiction Ripper books ever written, but I didn't know that because it was my first. I decided to buy it. It was dirt cheap. I threw it in my pile. I went home. I read the book. I thought, man, this guy knows his stuff. And But I, I apparently wasn't completely satisfied with his conclusion. So I, I walked next door to our apartment complex, happened to be a public library. And, uh, you know, for the younger generation, you know, libraries at one time, you know, had books. Uh, you know, not, uh, not just CDs, DVDs, and Internet connections. This is, back then, it was just books. And uh, although they did have three terminals, three computer terminals for this new thing called the Internet. And so while going there and checking out Ripper books, I taught myself, or I would sit down at the computer, and whoever happened to be sitting next to me, I would ask them, how do you work this thing? And, and it's true that uh, the first thing I looked up ever on the Internet myself, sitting down at a computer... I he showed me how to work a search engine. There was no Google back then, but I typed in. Uh, it was probably AOL. I typed in Jack the Ripper, and, and the first thing to come up was Casebook.org, which I don't even think it had that URL at the time. It just had this long URL, but it was a Jack the Ripper website, and so I clicked it. And so, as far as I can recall, the very first website I visited on the internet ever was, in fact, Stephen P. Ryder's casebook.org wow. and um, and I read all their pages they have a huge amount of pages of information I printed them out uh, I found the message board on there where people were actually talking and posting almost live 
about this case that now fascinated me. I logged in. I registered under the name Red Demon, um, and uh, that was my first moniker on the site. Shortly thereafter, I changed it to, you know, I just used my own name, and I have ever since. And uh, But that was my introduction into the world of Jack the Ripper. I wanted to know who he was. Uh, you know, I, 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 I took out books like The Lodger, which, by the way, I never returned that one. Here in America, it's called Jack the Ripper, First American Serial Killer. Very long title. Uh, I often just refer to it as The Lodger by Stuart P. Evans and Paul Ganey. Um, Martin Fido's book, Paul, you know, the, uh, I couldn't get Paul Begg's book, so I had to special order that from a bookstore and buy it. And around that time, uh, again, I also purchased Neil Sheldon's self-published book, Jack the Ripper and His Victims. He was self-publishing Ripper books. Uh, you know, he, he was a real you know, uh, forerunner to, to most of us and is still absolutely one of the most relevant researchers on the scene today, uh, and especially in terms of, of victim you know, the, the history of their lives, the genealogy of the victims. So anyways, that was my introduction. I, I was absorbing and just reading all these books. And what happened is during the course of this, I would notice the authors would contradict each other sometimes. And, you know, an author would say something, and I was starting to get a little more, you know, from reading these books, you start to, you know, retain some of this information. And and, and, and the more you read, the less satisfying each conclusion becomes because you realize that a, a number of authors are simply just feeding you a pet theory under the guise of fact. And, and not all of them, not, not, not Stuart Evans, uh, you know, of course. Um, although the lodger, I have to say, is, um, you know, people tend to think of Stuart as the, you know, the doyen of ripperology, the old man on the scene, you know, the, the, the greatest researcher there ever was. And they think, oh, well, he just... You know, you often hear people on the fringe movement talk about how, oh, he's he's trying to keep uh, new information down. He's part of this cartel. He's the, and none of that is true. Absolutely not. A, a, if you read the Lodger objectively, you'll see it's one of the most radical Ripper books ever written. Uh, if if that came out today, I, I can't imagine the response he he would get. But it came out twenty years ago through a reputable publisher, became a bestseller. But if you break that book down, here he is saying, uh, you know, here's a guy who was an actual suspect. You've never heard of him. His name's Tumblety, but he, in fact, was a police suspect. And then he goes on in the book to question things. He questions, uh, was Elizabeth Stride a ripper victim? Uh, far more controversially than that, he questions if Mary Kelly was, in fact, a ripper victim. Uh, this is radical thought now, let alone 20 years ago. And but uh, you know he had a good basis for all this. So I, I hold the lodger up as one of the absolute best examples of a quote unquote suspect book, uh, but also um, you know a great example of an extremely knowledgeable researcher going out on a limb to put uh, ideas out there that you know could come back to slap him in the face. And but sometimes you've got to do that to move a case forward. You've got to be willing to step out on a limb, so to speak. And uh, and so that was a big influence <clears throat> when I was researching and, and writing The Bank Holiday Murders, which incidentally is a book I've published and, and why we're doing this Rippercast. When I was putting that together, uh, Stewart's uh, The Lodger, uh, um, you know, was a big influence on that. Uh, uh, also, and, and maybe in particular, his book uh, that he wrote along with Nick Connell, 
uh, called The Man Who Hunted Jack the Ripper, you know, about uh, Edmund Reed and, and the police perspective. He's published a couple editions on that. That's one of my absolute all-time favorite books. Uh, it's a four or five hundred page book that he's boiled somehow, miraculously boiled down into like 200 or less pages. It's so jam-packed with information um, that every time you go back to read it, you learn something new. That's been my experience. And so when it came time for me to write this book, I kind of wanted to do the same thing. I wanted to write like a 400-page book in 200 pages. Uh, you know, sadly, I don't know. I don't possess Stewart's skill of, of writing. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I think that I have produced a, a, a book that's not long and boring, but uh, is one that you can go back to a number of times and maybe always see something new. I hope that's the case. That was that's what I was working towards. Those of us that have been reading your message board uh, participation over the years have noticed a change. You know, and, and of course, how everybody in the case gets gets uh, comes up with new ideas, discards their old ones. You know, you kind of went through phases um, th- that people who follow your posts can recognize. Uh, I believe when I first started reading your stuff, it was when you were into um, Donston, and and then there was a period you went through where you were pretty much zeroing in on the stride case mm-hmm. explain kind of your evolution as a ripperologist in in what it led you to decide finally you know okay well uh, i'm gonna have to write a book uh people have been bugging you for years about writing a book and and you would always say oh oh it's impro-, you know you would always kind of kid and say, well, I am writing a book. Or, you know, we weren't sure we were, whether we would take your ser- you seriously if there would ever be a Tom Westcott book or not. Um, but uh, so it's kind of explained to us how, how your, you know, how you evolved as uh, a researcher in this case to the point to where you wanted to write a book. Well, um, you know, the, you're right, though. For, for the last number of years, I have been saying I'm writing a book. It's coming out. People expected me to ha- put a book out on Liz Stride. People expected me to put a book out on Charles Legrand. And instead, I put a book out on, on, on Pearly Paul. So uh, you got to keep them guessing, I guess. But uh, uh, originally, yeah, see, like most people, I got into this case with the burning question who was Jack the Ripper? And, uh, and that's, you know, and that, that should be the burning question, I believe. Uh, and a lot of people who stay on the scene eventually. Burnout. They believe, you know, they think, oh, it's a futile question. We'll never know. And maybe they're right, but uh, they burn out to an extent. You see it, and they, and I think they a lot of people stay on the scene because it had it, it had become a part of their life. It was a social outlet now uh, for a number of people who were coming into it at the time I was. It's now more or less just a social outlet, and that's not never been the case for me. Those that, that that original question I had is still the one I have. It still burns. I'm still just as interested as I was then. Differences I know a hell of a lot more now than I did then. Part of that journey uh, when you're coming onto this case is learning about the various suspects, and it, and, and and you start to say to yourself, "Well, I just don't think this guy's Jack the Ripper, but I can't strike this guy off the list." And you're, it's maybe your your own personal biases that lead you towards certain suspects. Uh, 
I was in my 20s. For whatever reason, I settled on uh, Robert Deonston Stevenson, a.k.a. Rosalind Deonston, as a, a, as a uh, very possible ripper. I was never convinced he was the ripper. I want to make that clear. Um, but I did think that out of all, the whole bunch, at that time, he was my preferred suspect. And I shared that opinion with Ivor Edwards and Howard Brown and a few others, um, and, and we would talk about it. Uh, thankfully, Howard, and, and, and thanks to Howard and people like, uh, you know, Mike Covell, you know, the actor and raconteur, uh, you know, they, their research, which they put out, um, showed me that, okay, Deonston was not Jack the Ripper. And I was okay with that. Um, and I said, okay, no problem. And I moved on. Howard, you know, the rest of us, we all moved on and started looking at other avenues. But also during that time, you know, my case knowledge increased as it should. You have to, I believe, if you, it, now for most people, this is just fun. It's fun to read about. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's evocative. Uh, and that's fine. But for those of us who actually, you know, get in there and research the case, um, it's important to be objective. It's, you know, you're going to have your opinions, your biases, and that's fine. You can turn it on and off. You can say, okay, I'm going to research um, Kosminski, and, and I'm going to look at the case from the perspective of was Kosminski the ripper, and I'm going to evaluate the evidence that way, and it's good to do that, but only after you have objectively evaluated the evidence. Um, if you are coming into a new piece of evidence and you already have this preconceived notion that so-and-so was the ripper, that's how you're going to always know that piece of evidence. That's how you're going to see it. You're going to see it from a skewed perspective. And uh, since I was never convinced Deonston was the ripper, um, I was, and, then, and then early on I was shown that he wasn't, so then there I was, suspectless, uh, able to evaluate evidence um, objectively. And so my course at that point was, at the time, everyone was looking at Miller's Court. All roads led to Dorset Street. Everyone, Mary Kelly, Mary Kelly, Mary Kelly. And, and I said, okay, I'm going to look where no one else was looking then. And at that time, that was Burner Street and the murder of Liz Stride. Nobody was really interested in that. And uh, so I made that uh, an area of, of study for myself and um, you know, spent years studying that case and everyone involved, the uh, the working club men, the police, uh, the neighbors, this and that. I wrote a series of uh, essays on the Burner Street murder for uh, Ripper Notes magazine um, and later on for uh, a couple of journals that Don Souden uh, edited, uh, Casebook Examiner and the New Independent Review. And, uh, of course, I uh, had every intention of, uh, of writing a book called The Burner Street Mystery. In fact, that still will happen, I would imagine. Right now, I'm so burnt out on the subject <laughs> that I've tried to... I wanted that to be my follow-up to the Bank Holiday Murders, but I just can't get myself to start writing it because I, I've, you know, for so many years, that's what I've talked and written about. Um, and that's my own fault for talking about it endlessly on the boards to the point to where now when I sit down to write a book... On the subject, you know, I'd rather watch paint dry, essentially, um, because it's not new to me. It's not exciting. I, you know, it's it's just not. But it's still necessary because um, uh, more than any one of the other murders, it's the least uh, 
understood. It has the most myths. Um, I mean, very knowledgeable people in the case still believe that um, Listride was killed with a blunt instrument, uh, you know, a blunt knife, or uh, all these myths that surround it, uh, that none of them are true, that Michael Kidney would lock Listride in a room. That never happened. You know, this is, but it's in books, so people read it. They believe it must be true. Anyway, so that's where it started. And in the course of studying Burner Street, I became interested in this character name of Charles Legrand. And, uh, and I learned in an old you know, issue of Ripperologist from 98, an article by Jerry Nixon, that this Legrand fellow who, uh, who showed up as a private investigator interviewing witnesses, that he was, in fact, a criminal and a con man. And I thought, wow, that puts a new slant on it. Um, why is this criminal con man showing up and interviewing people? So I became interested in him. I wrote a little bit about it in Ripper Notes. Um, Deborah Reef, who, um, if, if you read the boards, you know that um, she's one of the absolute top Echelon researchers on the, the scene today. You've interviewed her. Uh, uh, you've interviewed her on your show uh, in regards to the Tim's torso murders. Uh, she uh, uh, is, a, you know, I mean, one of three people in the world who could be called an expert on those crimes. And, uh, but nobody is, you know, I mean, I, I can't say nobody's as good as researcher as Debs because that, that would be unfair to a number of researchers. I know for a fact I'm nowhere near that level. But she got interested in Legrand and over the course of the next few years turned up an enormous wealth of information on him. Um, a number of my early suspicions and speculations were proved true by her and other researchers. Again, in, in one instance, by actor and raconteur Mike Covell, uh, who found a little item that proved Legrand was indeed a police suspect contemporaneously uh, to the crimes, and which I, I figured he must be. <laughs> the police would be very remiss not to look at him. And so I became interested in Legrand, and uh, and I still am very interested in Legrand, um, I've, you know, discovered a lot of things that I'm not going to get into on this episode because it's not pertaining to our subject, but <clears throat> my point is, is I went to write my book about Legrand, uh, and I said to myself at the beginning, okay, you, you know, you're essentially, this is one book, but, you, but it's two books because I'm going to write the victims' sections uh, objectively. I'm going to go in... From scratch, starting back from square one and research through the, vi the victims, and I'm going to write about them objectively, not from the perspective that Legrand is the Ripper, because in, in, I didn't have a, the intention for this book to be, you know, oh, look, I found the Ripper. That was never my intention, because I'm not convinced that Legrand killed anybody. But uh, so I started at Emma Smith, which I at the time thought was square one. Uh, she is the first. Uh, quote-unquote, Whitechapel murders and the police Whitechapel murders file. That's not the same as saying she's the first Ripper victim, but she's the first Whitechapel murder. So I said, I'm going to start there. And one of the things I thought would be a good idea for my book, because I didn't want to, I'd said all along, that I said, I'm never going to write a Ripper book that's just another Ripper book. It has to have value. It has to add something new and, and, and relevant and vital to the mix. Uh, that's one of the reasons why it's taken me so long to actually come out with a book. I hadn't, uh, it wasn't from ego. A lot of, a number of 
authors just want to see their name on something, and so they cobble something together and spit it out. And, and that, that's not me. I had no interest in that whatsoever. But uh, having said that, it is awesome, you know, in fact, coming out with a book and seeing your name on it. But that shouldn't be the motivation. And so uh, I said, okay, I'm going to start from square one. And so I did that, and I wrote, uh, you know, a chapter on Emma Smith. And then I get into Martha Tabram, <clears throat> and, you know, something happened during the course of researching that chapter. I started hitting on things. I started noticing things that I hadn't noticed before. Now, when I did start writing it, I did have the idea that Pearlie Paul, um, who was Marianne Connolly, a.k.a. Pearlie Paul, um, I did have the idea that uh, um, she wasn't particularly honest. But, you know, that wasn't a radical idea. Uh, you know, and I certainly wasn't the first to think that. Uh, when I say first, I mean of the, the modern-day commentators. You know, Paul Begg has said as much. Howard Brown has said as much on his forums. But what they were saying was that uh, Pearlie Paul, um, you know, lied about when she identified the two soldiers as the men, that she knowingly lied about their identity. And what I started noticing was she lied about the whole thing, you know, everything. Uh, in other words, you know, she claimed to have been with Martha Tabram on the night of her murder, uh, you know, visiting uh, pubs up and down Whitechapel Road, uh, along the way meeting two young soldiers, uh, a corporal and a private, who treated them to drinks, pub hopping from one pub to the other. And then according to uh, uh, Paul's story, she, uh, you know, they... At some point, the soldiers wanted what they had spent the night paying for, and and so they went out uh, to uh, George Yard, where Martha Tabram and her man uh, went, you know, down the dark passageway, and Pearlie Paul and her corporal um, head off towards Angel Alley nearby, a, a very dirty, dingy little back alley that didn't at all resemble its wonderful name. And they do their business. Uh, Connolly and her man come back to George Yard. Martha's not there. The, the private's not there. And uh, they argue about money. Um, the corporal takes out his walking stick and hits her with it. This, you know, of course, you don't see this part in most Ripper books, but she did, in fact, say this at the inquest. And, and I thought, well, that's an interesting detail. But then she also says, oh, but they left the best of friends. So then they separate. They separate. Uh, Connolly goes off by herself. And that's the last she sees of that group. This is the story she fed to the police. Um, in some early versions of the story hinted at in the press, uh, you know, she may, have, she may have initially said that they spent their time entirely in the Princess Alice. Or that might have been a, a, a press error. I don't know. You know, we're, we're 126 years later. But it's interesting that the Princess Alice should come up so early on in the Ripper mystery. It comes up later uh, in, in, throughout the case. And anyways, uh, you know, I, I start looking at this and I start noticing things that uh, were incongruous. First of all, probably Paul's story itself, just on the face of it, you, you look at it and you go, now wait a minute, because uh, she was uh, 35 years old, a, a drunken, uh, you know, she was she was unclean. Her clothes would have been t torn and dirty. She was described as big and masculine, 
and uh, and you know Martha Tabram certainly we do have her photo. She wasn't winning any any uh, any beauty pageants, and but these two young dapper soldiers with pockets full of money should bypass all the young trollops in the East End and make their way to these two, and then spend all their money buying them drinks throughout the night. I mean, uh, you know, I suppose stranger things have happened, but on just the face of it, it doesn't seem it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, and I think the police felt the same way. They certainly made every effort. They talked to every business owner, every publican, every citizen, everyone in that area. Whitechapel Road, we're not talking about a huge area here. And if they spent hours, you know, traipsing up and down, um, of course, somebody would have seen them. Because, you know, again, two overweight street whores walking with two young dapper soldiers in their uniforms might stand out to somebody. But nobody saw them together. Nobody. And, and Reed, Inspector Reed, uh, who had charge of the case, records this in his reports. Um, however, he does, in fact, find a witness by the name of Ann Morris, who happened to be um, the uh, sister-in-law to Martha Tabram. Uh, they had a troublesome history, so when Ann saw Martha Tabram on the street that evening, she ducked back. <laughs> she didn't want a, a confrontation. She didn't want Martha to see her, so she ducked back and hid and watched Martha. She was standing on the curb alone, quite alone, and then uh, after who knows how long, Martha turns and, and walks towards the uh, White Swan public house, goes inside, and then Ann Morris is on her way. Well, this, this incident occurred a good hour after Pearly Paul had Martha and her already with the soldiers as a foursome. So, yeah, that's, you know, that in itself does not mean that Pearly Paul was lying. Because Martha could have said, I'm going to step out for some fresh air. Or, who knows? Anything could have happened. Um, but this information was delivered at the inquest. Uh, and, and, and Pearly Paul was the witness that had to follow Ann Morris. So when it comes time for Pearly Paul to take her seat, the first thing she does is try and get out of giving evidence. Um, she says, oh, I can't, you know, my chest, and she did have chest problems. She suffered with them for years. She said, I can't talk, you know, and, you, you know, I just, sorry, I can't talk. It's pretty convenient, but uh, the coroner was having none of it and had a constable stand by Pearly Paul and, when she would speak, this constable would reiterate what she was saying to everyone there. <clears throat> and uh, now at this point, um, Pearly Paul, if, if what Ann Morris had told before about Martha Tabern being alone, if that was either untrue or if it had, you know, a simple explanation, um, she could have offered that. She could have said either that woman's lying her, her face off or she could have said, well, yeah, Martha was alone for a few minutes. There's a perfectly... But she didn't do that. What she does instead is she now tries to change the timeline. Instead of saying, oh, you know, I met with... Uh, you know, Martha and I met up at 10-something. She's like, she moves it an hour later so that it makes it look like she met up with Martha a few minutes after Ann Morris saw her. In other words, she's now changing her story and lying. And she's caught in it and uh, changes it back to the original uh, version. But I thought, now that's very telling. I think that that says a whole lot, um, especially considering that uh, out of all the witnesses, there was one witness that Reed had the coroner instruct uh, that you know what you're saying, it can and will be held against you. 
um, basically because Reed wanted to make sure it was on record that she knew this. I, I think Reed had, had every intention of if he could prove that either Martha Tabram or, or Pearlie Paul were anywhere else in the city besides where Pearlie says they were, I think he was going to bring her up on charges. Um, unfortunately, he could never uh, never find out where she actually was. But from all uh, the evidence that I've compiled in my book, um, it does appear that the entire story was a fabrication. It was a lie. And that begs, begs the question, why? Why did she go to the police and tell this fictional story? Um, well, Paul Begg, in, in, in reviewing my book, who, who it appears agrees with me that Pearlie Paul was lying, but he suggests that she was just trying for 15 minutes of fame. That's why she went to the police. You know, and I guess if you're from a distance, that makes sense. But if you look at it, uh, that's, that's not, that can't be the answer. It absolutely is impossible for that to be the answer because while someone like Pearlie Paul might, <clears throat> you know, love the attention, um, and, uh, you know, where was it? You know, she, she ducked the press. Uh, where's the Pearlie Paul interview? Where, where, what newspaper interviewed her? Because they paid money to do this. Um, they interviewed the Reeves, uh, who were minor witnesses. They interviewed uh, Francis Hewitt, the, uh, you know, the manager of the building Tabram was killed in. Numerous papers interviewed him, in fact. And, and, and I don't think any, I think they love the attention. Um, where's the, where's the one person, if you were a newsman at that time, the one person you wanted to interview was Pearly Paul. The fact that there is no Pearly Paul interview can only be attributed to her unwillingness. You know, she didn't want the attention. She didn't want the interview. What's, what it is astounding is how much money she turned down because all she had to do is get the word out, I'm willing to give an interview to the highest bidder, and she would have made more in one hour than she had probably made in the last five years. And yet she didn't do that. So I think the argument that she was looking for attention just flies out the window. She had another motive for going to the police. Uh, what's interesting is recently, since my book came out, one of the things I wanted from this book was to get people talking and to get some of the the researchers on the scene who are, who are better at this than myself to take a look at some of this stuff and see what they could find out. And and that is happening. I'm, ha I'm extremely happy to say that's happening. Uh, Stuart P. Evans, again, who I consider, you know, I mean, like, he's like the Elvis of Ripperology, okay? Um, and uh, and Paul Begg, if you're listening, you're the Beatles. You're, you're, you, you know, you guys are both up there. But Stuart shows up on the, the, the jtrforums.com and, you know, and he's kind of ripping me a new one a little bit, but, uh, you know, whenever Stuart shows up to talk about this stuff, you got to pay attention because the guy's been researching this, this case since long before you or I were born. Um, and, and, uh, so you got to listen to it. And during the course though of our exchange, uh, he hit upon something that I didn't notice in, in, in my research, or I did notice it, but I didn't think anything of it. You know what I mean? Sometimes the importance of it doesn't come out to you at that time you're first seeing it. But what he pointed out was that according to Pearlie Paul, she, on the 8th, which is the day after the murder, she went to the mortuary and viewed the body of Martha Tabram and, and said, oh, yeah, there's... But, and she recognized her, obviously, but she did not 
make a statement to police. Now, this is weird. Um, that, in fact, I, I don't think of any other time that someone has gone to look at the body, but not admitted to recognizing it. But that's what happened. Uh, instead, Pearly Paul goes back home, re-emerges the next day. On her own, she goes to the police station and makes a statement. And that's when she was like, yeah, you know, that's Martha. And she becomes the very first person to correctly identify this body. Up to that point, the body was misidentified um, as, uh, as, a, as a Mary Withers. A lady named Jane Gillibank and her daughter went and looked at the body and said, you know what, that looks like this lady we know named Mary Withers. And we last saw Mary Withers the day before the murder out walking with a soldier in the East End. And so immediately, uh, you know, the police, uh, you know, Inspector Reed is like, okay, well, we might just have an identity for this body. Another, uh, <coughs> excuse me, man local to the area came in, a fellow by the name of Mr. Buckle. And he viewed the body and said, yeah, that could be, that could be Mary Withers. And so it was looking pretty good. Well, um, Pearlie Paul comes in and says, yeah, I know that body. You know, I know that person. That's uh, Emma. She knew her as Emma. And said, yeah, she lodged with me at, at 19 George Street. I've been good friends with her for four or five months. And I was with her on the, the night of her death. And so she delivers the story about the soldiers, blah, blah, blah. And it's all a lie. Well, I get to digging, and I and, and I find this article in the Times, which was a, a statement from Francis Hewitt, uh, again the uh, manager of the building where Tabor was going up. Following the murder, Francis spent a lot of his time in the company with police, obviously because they were going from one floor, floor to the other in his building, interviewing every single person who lived there. And I would imagine during his time with the police, you know, he he heard a lot of things and learned a lot of things. One of the things he learned. Um, but he either got the details wrong or the reporter he spoke to got it wrong, but it came out in the papers on the 8th that um, the victim had last been seen in the company of some soldiers, meaning plural, uh, on the night of her murder. This is a garbled version of Jane Gillibank's tale of her having been, of Mary Withers having been seen with one soldier on the day before the murder. Well, it's kind of, I don't think it's coincidence at all that when Pearlie Pohl shows up with her uh, fictional story that she um, has relied on this newspaper account to say, okay, I'm going to use the facts in this newspaper account to, to present a, a story the police will believe. Because she believes that Martha Tabram was seen with two soldiers on the night of her murder. So she simply inserts herself into this story that she thinks is factual and presents it to the police. Well, it's not factual. Martha Tabram, it was not Martha Tabram seen with a soldier, it was Mary Withers, and it was the day before, and it was with one soldier. Yeah. So when you start putting all these pieces together like I did, you realize not only that it was a lie, but you start to find out that this lie um, came into play uh, from a Times article. And I thought, well, that's weird. What's she doing reading the Times? Well, she wouldn't have been. Again, that would be like I say in the book, uh, like some of the homeless people in, 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 in Central Park in New York City standing around reading the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's, it could happen. You know, the, most of them are literate, I'm sure, but why? Why would it happen? And I thought, well, it makes a lot more sense that Pearly Paul, because I didn't believe her as the killer. People have asked me since the book came out, why don't you accept that she was the killer? Because there's all this evidence. And I say, um, I don't believe Jack the Ripper was a woman, and that's not me being sexist. It's 
Um, it's just a simple look at the murders, look at the crimes. Uh, whoever committed these crimes, I believe, was was uh, tall, much stronger than his victims. Uh, knew how to use a knife. Um, there's no evidence to suggest uh, that Pearlie Paul knew how to use a knife. Although she was big and masculine, she was also in poor health. Um, and you know, I, I don't think she necessarily. Why would she go around butchering up women? And where in the last 126 years is there a case of another woman doing this, uh, similar crimes? It's just not there. So, no, whoever killed these women was either one or more men, but it looked like Pearlie Paul knew who these men were. Um, she was either working to cover up for them or was working to cover up for them on someone else's behalf. And that's when I started looking at the men in her life, which uh, there's not, there weren't, I'm sure there was a lot more than we know about, but uh, the one that stood out was John Satchel, her landlord, and also Martha Tabram's last landlord. Uh, and I said, oh, here's a guy who was, in fact, in a position to pull her strings. That doesn't mean he was the one, but he was in a position to do so. But he's a virtual non-entity in Ripper literature. You know, when you look through the books, you might see his name pop up here and there, and uh, you know, as a footnote. Uh, you know, uh, you, John Bennett, uh, you know, again, one of the absolute top researchers in the field today has, has put out a lot of wonderful information on these lodging housekeepers, which I'm not shy about referencing in my book. But, uh, you know, John Satchel, otherwise, I don't know much about him. He's this non-entity. You know, who, who's this guy? And so I start looking into that, and, and it just snowballed from there. Um, once I got intrigued and pearly paul i realized everything i knew about the tape room investigation was wrong which is is in fact the case uh then i had to go back i tore up my emma smith chapter i got rid of it i had to go back and rewrite that from square one um because it changed everything and and that's when i realized during the course of this that my quote-unquote charles legrand book was going to have to wait because i was on to something totally different that would would not just be two little you know ten page chapters in, in in a larger book. This is this is going to stretch, you know, to hundreds of pages, and it's a separate book altogether. And so at, at that point, I realized, okay, I'm writing something else here, and I don't know what it is yet. I got to stop writing for a while and do a lot more research, and that's what I did. And then when I went back, I decided, uh, you know, this you know what is this book I'm writing? It's something like this has never come out before. It's a Jack the Ripper book, but it's not about Jack the Ripper. You know, what do you do here? And and I made the decision. I was trying to come up with a title of it, and I said, Dude, the title's already there. Uh, it's the title of my chapter for my original book, which is going to be called The Bank Holiday Murders, because Emma Smith and Martha Tabram were both killed on bank holidays, which is an interesting fact when you think about it. And uh, so I said, there's the name of my book. And everyone was like, no, you got to call it Jack the Ripper, and no one will buy it. And I said, well... You know, I'm not writing this book to get rich or sell a ton of copies. I'm, I'm writing it to get it in the hands of the right people, the people who will care about this. And I said, I think they'll find it. So I uh, called it the Bank Holiday Murders. I, I wrote it. I researched it. And I realized at some point you do have to stop researching. Um, I didn't want to, but I was like, you know what? Um, you got to put this out because I think to, to, to get it to the next level, I'm going to need help. You know, I'm going to need the input from other people. I'm going to need to find out where, if any, where my mistakes are, if I've made some. Um, you know, and the only way to do that is to put it out there. And so that's what I did. It came out February 18th. You know, not even a month and a half ago. 
uh, and it's been an awesome experience. I'm going to come up for air. Uh, I hope you haven't fallen asleep on me, Jonathan. So I'm going to stop no, right I'm now. Still here. I'll pick it up in a minute. Here we go. I'm stopping. Okay. Well, I'm I'm just going to ask a, another question, and you'll just have to start right back up again. <laughs> That's the nature of the show. Um, uh, you'd mentioned Emma Smith, and we'll get to her murder. Um, one of the interesting um, aspects of the Emma Smith murder, I want you to touch upon, um, and I'm sure you'll you'll elaborate as far as what you included in your book. Uh, but what is the press's reaction to these early murders? Oh, yes. Uh, um, initially, uh, and you know, according to Emma Smith herself, she was set upon by a gang, three men she identified, one of which could have been around the age of 19. I don't know how they were able to get that exact age of one of her attackers, considering she admitted that she didn't know who these people were. Um, but then uh, the police and the press acting... Um, you know, with them, uh, were reporting after the Tabram murder and, and then even up through Nichols, um, the similarities of course were noted between the Smith's murder and the Tabram murder. And then even into the Nichols and in some cases the Chapman one. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so you get this, uh, newspaper, whether it's the nature of their competition or, or what? But um, when one newspaper would would say um, Emma Smith was set upon by a gang, Martha Tabram was murdered. We believe that the same people who killed Martha Tabram were responsible for the Emma Smith murders. Therefore, they're both gang related. Right. But but then another newspaper would come out the next day and say, "Ha ha ha! You see what they just said? Well, that's." Com completely ludicrous. Uh, Martha Tabram was killed by a single person. So therefore Emma Smith must have been killed by they, they at the initially they wanted to tie these two murders together. It was just a matter of deciding on whether they were both committed by a gang or they were both committed by a lone assassin. So it seems that the newspapers did agree on one thing initially, and that's Emma Smith and Martha Tabern murders were connected. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of who were the perpetrators or per perpetrator of those crimes. And, and, and it's an aspect of your book that kind of uh, is, leads to some questioning as well. Um, how, either how much can we believe of what Emma Smith had said um, about her attackers, would would she have made up a story, for instance, or is there, or you know, is there something going on else going on here? So maybe you can comment a little bit about that. Well, uh, for starters, it's it's. A, I'm glad you did mention the press in connection with these early murders because one of the things that gets commented on is the progression of violence in the Ripper murders. They say, oh, there's a progression. Well, there's also a progression in the press. And to go back to what I consider the first Whitechapel murder, which is that of Emily Horsnell in November of 1887, uh, she also lived at John Satchel's lodging house at 19 George Street. She lived there. This was, No, she would not have known Martha Tabram because Martha Tabram moved in long after her murder, but she would absolutely have known Pertley Paul. They lived together under that roof for years. And uh, Emily Horsnell was a young woman. 
clearly a prostitute uh, who um, died uh, under mysterious circumstances. She had been beaten to death, as all we know. There was no autopsy performed, unfortunately. It cost money to do this, and the uh, at, and the press absolutely ignored this case. Deborah Reef in 2008 uncovered she uncovered Emily Horsnell. We'd never heard of her before. She discovered one lone press report in Lloyd's Weekly newspaper that covered the inquest into Emily Horsnell. And for the years since then, Debs has looked for other source material in the papers, and it's just not there. Um, totally ignored. So we want to talk about evolution. Here's the first murder, and there's one newspaper report. But what a newspaper report. It tells us, number one, the... Uh, a woman was uh, brutally beaten, uh, languished for days, and then died. Kind of what we see uh, later happen to Emma Smith, which is better documented. Um, the the police ask, or the, the coroner asks the police, like, look, you know, it's a, are you even going to investigate this? And they're like, no, we're not going to get a clue. There's no, you know, we're not going <laughs> to. So because there won't be an investigation, <clears throat> the coroner does not expend his resources for a proper autopsy and allows the inquest jury to re return a verdict of open, meaning we don't know what killed her, which is nonsense because there's absolutely no question that this woman was murdered. I mean, it's clearly a case of murder. But if they return that verdict, then there has to be an autopsy. There has to be an investigation, and that costs money. And the coroner says, well, it's not going to lead anywhere, so let's not bother. <clears throat> so we don't really know what killed Emily Horse now. We know only what the doctor what he saw, and incidentally that doctor would later be the first doctor to the scene of the Mary Kelly murder. But this doctor uh, saw uh, that she had been savagely beaten. Her her belly area was distended and she died. Uh, he believes, again, there was no autopsy. He believes she died of peritonitis, you know, her the rupture of her internal organs. <clears throat> and but, of course, that leaves a big question mark in my mind. And, and, you know, of course, Emma Smith hadn't been murdered yet. But after that, you look back, you know, was she violently, you know, raped with an inanimate object as Emma Smith was? I don't know. We don't know. But she may have been. What's fascinating about that case is who shows up at the inquest to give all the evidence uh, is John Satchel himself. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the only one going to talk. I was the last one to speak with with uh, Emily and find out what happened. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Supposedly, according to him, she was beaten four days earlier, comes back to the lodging house, languishes for four days, but doesn't tell anybody what happens. Her closest friends, but tells him, the, you know, the lodging house keeper, that she was beaten by a bunch of men she couldn't identify. So, th you know, this is the Emma Smith case, <laughs> uh, you know, six months before Emma Smith was murdered. So there's Emily Horse now. Then you skip forward to one month to, to December of, of 1887. Margaret Hames, who was a lodger at 18 George Street, which not, you know, here in America, we would think 18 and 19 would, would be across the street from each other, but they were actually next door to each other. And uh, so Margaret gets beaten up by a bunch of people that she can't, you know, conveniently can't identify almost dies, I have to assume, because she spent 20 days in the hospital throughout November, and is, 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 but luckily survived and is released. Margaret Haynes then would figure into 
the investigation, you know, a few months later in April of 1888, um, she is walking in the Limehouse district. It's bank holiday night. And, you know, logic suggests she had walked so far from her home because there'd be a lot of, a lot of uh, sailors on leave with their money in the Limehouse district. And she wanted some of that cash. So while she's out there, she sees Emma Smith talking to a man. And, uh, and I don't know if she went, if she walked with Emma to the Limehouse district to work. I don't know. I don't know that. I think it's possible. But she definitely saw her there, according to her statement. And, and, and at that time, a couple of young people show up and, and punch her in the face. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm heading home. And so she heads home. Now, this is the official version of events. If we take away the, the stories that people tell, what we have in actual evidence is uh, Margaret Haim showing up at the lodging house with, you know, a, bruises on her face. She got punched in the face. She has to explain those bruises, doesn't she? Uh, and then a few hours later, Emma Smith rolls in um, with her ear nearly torn off. Um, some sources say cut off. Uh, and, you know, her face, her head are bloodied. <clears throat> she had taken her shawl off her shoulders and stuffed it between her legs because she was bleeding profusely, you know, from the vaginal area. And according to uh, Mary Russell, the deputy of, of the house at 19 George Street, see, uh, John Satchel was the uh, lodging house keeper. Um, he was renting, uh, he ran the establishment, and he hired Mary Russell as the deputy keeper to basically be the on-site manager, is what she was. And so uh, Emma tells Mary, oh, I, f I have fallen down. That's how I got these injuries. And she's like, I'm not buying it. And, and eventually Emma tells her what happened. She was set upon by three youths. Or no, three men, I apologize. One of the men was a youth of, of, apparent, of, of approximately 19. Uh, and, uh, you know, and this is what happened to her. And that, that, and according to Emma, this happened at one thirty a.m. A good, you know, hours and hours before she actually showed up. So, if what she what she says is true, more than likely she laid unconscious, possibly left for dead by her assailants, um, and you know, wakes up, stumbles home. The women talk her into going to the London hospital. Uh, uh, so, Mary and a fellow lodger by the name of Annie Lee escort Emma to the London hospital, which which. Again, when you strip away all the stories that people are telling, <clears throat> I found it curious that these women should set out alone walking to the London Hospital, literally walking right past the site of her attack, where these villains might still be lying in wait. Uh, and yet they knew all of these men. The, the house, in fact, the, the 19 George Street would have had um, a bully working for them, which which is essentially a gatekeeper, you know, a, a man who would keep out unwanteds and protect the girls. Why didn't a man walk with them to the hospital? It's almost as though they knew they weren't in danger. Because uh, another thing that's important to mention is we always talk about Emma Smith said this. We don't know what Emma said. The police never got the opportunity to take a statement from her. It's all hearsay from two sources, Mary Russell and Dr. Haslip, the 23-year-old doctor who was in charge of London Hospital at the time. And he didn't. It doesn't appear he actually wrote anything down. Nobody wrote anything down. She said they were reciting what they heard from memory. 
And uh, so, anyways, when the police are eventually made aware that, that this has happened, nobody reported it to the police. Not the women, not Emma, not, not Dr. Haslip, nobody. When they eventually became aware, they talked to the constables. The constables said, no, we didn't see or hear anything. And Reed, Inspector Reed, and his superior, Chief Inspector West, thought this is odd. You know, they should have seen these women. Uh, they should have, you know, Emma was, you know, walking around the streets bloodied, and, and nobody saw her. She didn't stop a constable. <clears throat> they thought this is kind of odd, and uh, they went to look at the site that Mary Russell. Mary Russell said that Emma pointed out the site of her attack. So they went and looked. They looked around the whole neighborhood. They found no blood. Now this woman bled profusely. Not just from, you know, her nether regions, but from her head. You know, the, her ear was half gone. So, w not one speck of blood. And it hadn't rained between then and the time the police were looking. And I get to thinking, well, knowing what I know now about Martha Tabram and Pearly Paul coming forth to tell lies, what if, what if things happened differently than what these women said? So, and I thought, if you're, because if you're going to tell a lie and to cover up from someone, you have to change certain things. Uh, you have to change the time. You know, you have to say, oh, the murder happened at, at a time when the actual killers would have had an alibi. Uh, in Emma Smith's case, you would have had to change the location of where it happened. You change the location and the time, then whoever actually committed it will not be a suspect. And at that time, Emma Smith had no idea she was dying. That's important to remember, too. When she, when she spoke... She thought, I'm, you know, I'm going to recover like Margaret Hames did. She would have been well aware of what happened to Margaret a few months earlier. I'm going to recover like she did. I'm going to get out, and I've got to go back to that world. If I snitch on who did this to me, you know, I'm in trouble. I'm in serious trouble. That was not an option. It's an easier course to say I was set upon by strangers. And I think that's exactly what happened um, uh, in, in the Emma Smith case, I don't know that. I don't. And maybe it happened exactly like she said. Why not? But, but then yeah. where was the blood? You know, and and then you know this curious question of the constables on the beat around that area. You know, being totally mum. Chief Inspector West actually uses the words deny. They deny having seen anything. Not that he doesn't state as a fact that they didn't see anything. He he simply says they denied it, which to me suggests. He believed they did see and hear more than they were saying. And then my research continues, and I find out, well, these lodging housekeepers had a number of the policemen under their thumb, uh, and uh, John Satchel was one of those men. So, uh, And Daniel Lewis, who was uh, next-door neighbors to John Satchel, uh, who owned... Uh, or I should say, I don't recall if he owned it, but he was the lodging housekeeper of 18 George Street, where Emma lived, he, uh, they were all pretty tight. They were, you know, these various lodging housekeepers were all friends. They were mostly Irish. They would intermarry. And so there was a strong connection base. Plus, they were in the same business together. I mean, they, they, they were in the exact same business together in the same area, same clientele. And, uh, and these guys were extremely powerful in the East End. They, uh, were, you know, if you watch the Godfather films and you see how Vito Corleone comes up and eventually, you know, is the godfather of his neighborhood, everything goes through him. That's how it was with these lodging housekeepers in that time, uh, in 1888, in the East End. And you did not speak out against them you, you, because they owned everything. They ran everything. The food you ate, the beer you drank, the place you slept. 
Um, if you wanted to walk safely down the street, you didn't rub them the wrong way. So again, Emma Smith, thinking she was going to recover from her wounds, would have had this in mind. And, and let's say, and it, if she did know her attacker, she still would have told us the same story. She would have said, I didn't know who these men were. Margaret Haynes, same thing. Uh, Emily Horsnell, same thing. Had she lived and made a statement, which incidentally she lived, did live for four days and didn't make a statement, didn't go to the infirmary, didn't go to the police. Interesting, isn't it? So, and this keeps happening. And these are two houses next door to each other. We're, we're now at a body count uh, of two dead women and one almost dead woman from two neighboring houses. Now you skip forward to August. Martha Tabram moves into 19 George Street. You know, weeks later, she's the next victim. And you, you, back up back for a second. Up. You had um, mentioned in your book um, the uh, probability that Mary Russell would have had um, delayed in taking Emma Smith to the London Hospital Yes, tells her the proprietor of the lodging house arrived yes. on the scene, and that that's an important. I don't think you you uh, you mentioned that yet in the show, but that's an important point in illustrating the hold that the lodging house keepers might have had. Um, yes, it, it is, and 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 you could say it's speculation on my part because it is. I don't have a document that says Mary Russell ran over. Daniel Lewis lived very close by. So it wouldn't have been much to go get him. I don't have a document, but you have to understand these lodging houses ran by protocol and procedure, just as the police would have. So like in the case of the police, when you can say, well, procedure says they would have done this, so then you can say, well, even though I don't have a document that says they did this, it's logical to assume they did because that was their procedure and protocol at the time. Well, I'm applying that same thinking to the lodging house keepers. When we look at uh, the Mary Kelly murder, who discovered Mary Kelly's body? It was John McCarthy, you know, the landlord. It was his right-hand man, uh, Indian Harry, uh, Thomas Boyers, who peeped through the window and saw what had to have been the most disturbing scene of his entire life. And his, and his first thought was, this is Jack the Ripper. And so what, what would you or I do at that moment? We would have hightailed it to the nearest constable or police station. That's what anybody would have done, but that's not what Thomas Boyers did because procedure and protocol dictated in his position that he take that information to John McCarthy, which is what he did. And then it was had to be John McCarthy's decision whether or not to go to the police. And uh, and then you look at uh, across the street, uh, or no, no, down the street from uh, uh, McCarthy was uh, William Crossingham and his 35 Dorset Street, which figures heavily in my book. The 1901 murder of Marianne Austin. Once again, uh, you know, they had to wait for word from William Crossingham to see what to do. And, and then what do they do? They move a body. <laughs> they move evidence. They dress the body. They, they lie about everything. We're t and, you know, people throw The word conspiracy has, much like the, you know, the word legend, or genius is overused to the extent that it lost its meaning, but it's also taken on this idea. This, uh, if you if you say there's a conspiracy, then you're a conspiracy nut, and the idea then therefore the suggestion is conspiracies don't exist. But what is a conspiracy? It's when two or more people agree on a on, on a plan, a, a course of action. 
you and I, for instance, have conspired to create a podcast. And so conspiracies do exist. Now, if you look at the Marianne Austin case, which is discussed in my book and is based upon the researches uh, and writings of Rob Clack in a much longer, detailed, and, and thoroughly exceptional article or essay called uh, Death in a Lodging House, published in Ripper Notes and, and now available for free for reading in the dissertation section of casebook.org. You can go read it there. This is the single best documented case of, uh, of conspiracy amongst the, the not only the lodging house keepers, but the lodgers themselves. They all had to fall in line. You had to do that. It was a system. It's like the you know in the prison system, you have a code you have to follow if you want to survive in a prison. That's what this was. And you can see that detailed and documented in the Marianne Austin case. And if you read that and you go, okay, now I appreciate this system that's in place, and then you apply what you know back to the Emma Smith, Emily Horsnell, Martha Tabra murders, you get a better understanding of what the police were up against in trying to get at the truth. It was nearly impossible for them. And, in fact, in the Marianne Austin case, which should have been solved, uh, you know, do and not because of the... The, the police officer, Duvall, was, was exceptional, and, and, and he was frustrated at every turn by William Crossingham, by John McCarthy, um, and by the people in that house. John McCarthy, in fact, um, can be seen as a suspect in that murder. And this is John McCarthy, the man who, who at that point is the only one known to have had a key to Mary Kelly's room, um, which was locked, and her body's dead behind it. And instead of producing a key to open the door, he says, oh, I don't have one, and, and proceeds to beat the door down, you know, and uh, with a pickaxe, you know, uh, whether or not that actually happened. He probably just pried it open, but we like to say he beat it down. It's dramatic. And, uh, you know, very, you know, these people are pretty suspicious. They're pretty suspicious. And then when I, after the course of my investigation, which... I centered the book around Pearlie Paul because, you know, bodies pile up around this woman. She's, uh, you know, we're now at 19 and 18 George Street. We've now got a body count of three, and we've got an almost dead woman uh, in the person of Margaret Haynes. That's, that's four vicious assaults in a very short time frame. Pearlie Paul moves from 19 George Street to 35 Dorset Street. Within in, in that same time frame, Polly Nichols, as I put in my book, moves into 35 Dorset Street. And this is not discussed in any Ripper book prior to mine. Um, my source is her death certificate, which has been publicly available on, on casebook.org and other sources for years. Years. And somehow no one wants to mention it because, I, I don't know, I think it might be inconvenient because the sources have always said her final address uh, was was some was 18 Thrall Street, and no, her final address was 35 Dorset Street, living under the same roof as Pearly Paul. Now, did the two know each other? I have no idea. They were would have been there together for a very brief time. They may have known each other before they ever stayed there. Or they may have never spoken two words to each other as long as they lived. I don't know. What I know is Pearly Paul moves from a house where everyone around her is dying to a new house, and boom. Polly Nichols is murdered, becomes the first canonical Ripper victim within weeks. Boom, Annie Chapman is murdered, also living at 35 Dorset Street. So, she's, you know, Pearlie Paul is like, 
you know, Jessica Fletcher on the TV show Murder, She Wrote. She uh, can't blow her nose or step out back to use the loo without someone dropping dead. And in, in Murder, She Wrote, uh, that's entertainment. But this is real life, and that does not happen. Uh, but let's say it does happen. Let's say, okay, she's, you know, people die, no big deal. Uh, it's coincidence. Okay, that is can be coincidence. What is not coincidence was her personal choice to to lie to the police and throw their tabern murder completely off track, which she did successfully do. She went to one. First, she goes in to make her statement, says, I'll be back the next day to uh, attend an identity parade at the Tower of London to look at their soldiers. She doesn't show up. She instead tells her fellow lodgers, I'm going to go kill myself. And she leaves, and she goes into hiding. The police track her down. They bring her back, make her go to the parade. And she walks around like she owns the place. As the one press reporter said, she's arms akimbo. Uh, walking around going, he ain't here, with a great deal of feminine emphasis. So apparently her chest was clear on this day. She could speak loudly. And, uh, you know, again, very conveniently, at, at, at will. So... But she says he's not here. And then she goes, oh, you know, he had a white band around his cap. That makes him one of the cold, cold stream guards. That means Reed has to go put up, you know, organize another identity parade, thus buying more time, um, you know, stalling the investigation further. She then shows up at that second identity parade, a totally different person now, by the way. She's no longer enjoying this. She wants it done as quickly as possible. And uh, just quickly picks out two soldiers and says, yep, yeah, that's them, that's them, that's them, got to go. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's a source I did not include in my book, but I'm going to mention it here. And it's uh, Walter Dew, who I, 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 I use him heavily in my Emma Smith chapter. And I chose not to in my Martha Tavern chapter because I wanted that to focus on Inspector Reed. And But Walter Dew was a subordinate officer to Reed. He was involved in these two investigations, Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, and he and his memoirs, written many years after the murders, but he includes the comment that it was believed that Pearlie Paul merely picked out two of the first soldiers she saw. In other words, her entire identity was, in fact, a lie. And so... People have since my book come out going, well, you don't know that Reed disbelieved Paul. I'm like, yeah, I pretty much do. I mean, if you read my book, there's lots of pieces of evidence. And and here's another one, one of his own subordinate officers saying, yeah, she pretty much just picked out the first two soldiers she saw. And, and it was not an honest identification. Well, by identifying innocent people... You're, you're, you know, she's further shielding the real people who committed these crimes. Was, did she go against her will? Was she paid? Or was she a willing participant in the cover-up? I don't know. But I do know that, it's, that, that according to the press, the police had her followed. Uh, you don't just have your witnesses followed. You have, you know, they had her followed and watched. <clears throat> and um, there's something extremely suspicious about this woman. And then she goes to Dorset Street, and Polly Nichols is murdered. And lo and behold, guess who's going to the police again? It's Pearly Paul. And she's got a new suspect. She's got a new story. And that's, you know, what's going on here? And this time, you know, uh, based on the press reports, she her story is supported by two witnesses, Eliza Cooper and Elizabeth Allen, uh, both residents of 35 Dorset Street. And in fact, it appears Eliza Cooper worked in some sort of she wasn't the lodging housekeeper, but she had some sort of authority there because when Annie Chapman, Ripper victim Annie Chapman, needed soap, she was told, go see Eliza. Eliza oversaw 
the, uh, um, the, the, the soap. They, so she wasn't just a lodger. She had responsibility. And so there's no way Marion Colony, Pearly Paul, could have avoided knowing Eliza Cooper, as has been suggested. So uh, then Annie Chapman gets into a fist fight with Eliza Cooper, Pearly Paul's friend, and next thing you know, is dead, you know. So here once again, and then uh, uh, she's looked at, Eliza Cooper is looked at with suspicion, and I'm sure throughout this at different times, Pearly Paul had to have been looked at with suspicion. Um, Pearly Paul, I believe, knew all the victims. Uh, I can't prove that, but I do think uh, these five consecutive murders, she's either living with or next door to the victims. Five murders and Margaret Haynes. That's six victims uh, consecutive. And then right after the Annie Chapman murder, Pearly Paul disappears is never heard from again in the case. Um, her credibility was shot, obviously. You know, she couldn't... It's not like she could go a third time to the police and say, oh, I have more evidence or a clue. No one's going to believe anything she said. She's the boy who cried wolf. Um, so, anyways, that's the, the pearly pole story in, in a nutshell. But to go back to your original question about the press, there is an evolution. Emily Horsnell, one article. Emma Smith, her case wasn't really covered, but her inquest was. A number of papers covered... Uh, the inquest. Now, with Martha Tablin, the press becomes more interested. Like, something's going on here. And you mentioned to me, Jonathan, you said the press connected the Smith and the Tabber murder, which is true. But not only the press, the police did. Inspector Reed, Walter Dew, uh, went to their deathbeds believing these women were killed by the same man. And I find this very powerful, because if uh, Reed, in numerous sources, says one man killed Emma Smith. Well, what, what about the group of three? You know, we don't know why he came to disbelieve that story, but we just know he did. And that intrigued the hell out of me, and I wanted to know why, and that, that was part of the impetus of me looking really close, as I don't know why Inspector Reed decided that, that this hearsay story of the, the three men attacking Emma Smith wasn't true. I just know that he did conclude it was not true. And so, to, you know, Walter Dew, he talks about it specifically in his book. He, he mentions uh, an early theory being the Whitechapel blackmailing gang, and, and he didn't think that was the answer. So, uh, very intriguing. And then, of course, the uh, uh, Nichols murder happens, and new investigators get involved. Inspector Aberline uh, and others, who I think were also involved in, in the later stages of the Tabroom investigation, which is why they were so on hand, for the Nichols crime, but uh, they came in with a different perspective. They weren't involved with the Smith or the early stages of the Tabram investigation. They did not believe that Smith was killed by the same person or people who, who killed Tabram and Nichols. Everyone believed Tabram and Nichols were connected. Uh, in, in fact, more of the contemporary investigators believed that, that Tabram was the first Ripper victim than who believed Nichols is. Uh, and that's gotten lost in modern Ripper literature, but if you take it all the way back, um, you can say that it was a general consensus that Tabram was the first Ripper victim. Well, I took it a step further, and I said, okay, here's my problem. The evidence in the Smith and Tabram case suggests they were killed by the same person. <clears throat> and these investigators believe that Tabram and Nichols were killed by the same person. Ergo, the Ripper crime started before Tabram, but they didn't start with Smith. 
because you have Horsnell to contend with. So then you've got to take it a step further. Emily Horsnell would be the first Whitechapel murder victim had the coroner allowed the jury to return a verdict of murder. He didn't. He returned an open verdict, which meant the police were not obligated to investigate it because a murder never happened. Thus, Emma Smith is the first Whitechapel murder officially. Um, but, uh, you know, let's be honest, she was murdered, so that makes her, in my opinion, the first Whitechapel murder victim. You have to start there and work your way forward. That doesn't mean, you know, primo facto that these women, or primo facie, or whatever the term is, that these women were all killed by the same person, but they were all murder victims that occurred within the same general area. Indeed, um, uh, where Smith was allegedly attacked and where Martha Tabram was unquestionably murdered were mere yards from one, one another. These, these happened in the, in the same neighborhood. You know, go out your front door, walk to the end of your street. There's the distance between these two murders. Uh, and then as I uncovered in my investigation of Martha Tabram, it's not this, just this quick 39-stab frenzy and the killer's running out the door. Uh, he spent time on that first floor landing with her. He uh, tore her coat open. He lifted her skirts. Now, why would he lift her skirts all the way up um, if he wasn't intending to do something down there? Not, and he didn't rape her uh, with his person. He did, I believe, with he he, he inserted uh, a long, strong-bladed instrument into her vagina in the same way Smith had a blunt object thrust into hers. Uh, this has never appeared in a Ripper book before, but um, when you look at the facts of the case, she was positioned as though she'd been raped. That was the impression of those who first saw her. Her skirts were pushed up. Um, the uh, Dr. Colleen noted a, a great deal of blood between her legs, and that doesn't just get there. In a woman who's been 30, stabbed 39 times in the primarily in the upper portion of her body, why is such a remarkable amount of blood found between her legs. Well, I would suggest that was because uh, she was stabbed internally. In fact, when the when the uh, at the inquest, um, the uh, doctor splits his uh, medical testimony into two parts: what he saw when he looked at the body outwardly, uh, and then what he saw after he did the internal autopsy. And only then does he mention. That um, you know that there was a stab down below. He's not specific about it. He he shows uh, great uh, uh, taste in in how he reveals his information. And I've caught some flack for this on the board, saying, "Oh well, you know, I don't think this happened. You know, you're just you're seeing faces and clouds, and and I don't believe I am at all. You know, look at the headwind. She did uh, the." Nowhere in the police reports that survived to us today is a headwind mentioned that Martha Tabram was hit upon the head. It's not in the police reports. But one newspaper carries a quote from Dr. Colleen that she was, in fact, hit upon the head. And so we all accept that as, as true. But, you know, why? It's not in the police reports. The reality is um, most of the police reports that existed are gone. We don't have them. So, so to say something is not in the police reports merely means it's not in the extant police reports, those that exist today for us to read. We don't know what is in all those reports that are long gone. Um, so, you know, you have, to, you have to use all the sources accordingly, and you have to be cautious with them. But the reality is the police reports are not complete. The reality is the press is not always accurate at all. So you have to use, you know, caution and and better judgment when putting these sources together. But what I think I've created here is if we look at 
The great thing about the inquest is they were covered by numerous reporters for numerous papers. So when you see something stated across numerous papers by different reporters, you can rest, be reasonably sure that was in fact stated at the inquest. And uh, and if you look at the arguments I make for the various contentious things I say in my book, very rarely am I relying on one single source. I'm, I'm always pulling from different ones and I'm putting it together to create a full argument. And uh, and that's this is one of those cases. Martha Tabram was semi-nude. Her breasts were exposed. Most of her private parts were exposed because her clothes were pushed up. Um, but again, I ask, you know, why would the killer uh, spread her legs, lift her skirts, um, do something that, you know, he uh, does, does an external leg wound create a great deal of blood? It can, you know, if you hit the right artery. But the doctor didn't say any arteries were cut. Um, and, uh, and he would have. There would have been no reason not to. Uh, oh, you know, he cut her leg, hit, hit an artery, a femoral artery, and she bled out. Well, he doesn't say that. What he says is there's a deal of blood between the legs. Uh, Swanson says she was uh, injured in the private parts. And, you know, you put all this together, and then you have this this long, strong instrument that we often thought of as a bayonet or a sword. Uh, I think it was quite possibly a sword stick. Uh, and it's thrust through the breastplate and into the heart, was this, in fact, the only wound this was used for? It makes sense to me that if the killer spread her legs, he's done all this stuff, he's created a great deal of blood, it was probably this instrument that inflicted that uh, lower abdominal wound, you know, through into her vagina, and caused this great deal of blood. Uh, Dr. Colleen w did the best he could in, uh, to determine if this woman, who at the time was unidentified, had ever bore children, and he thought she had not. But, in fact, Martha Taborman had a number of children. Why couldn't he tell that she had possibly because that whole region down there was destroyed. And so there you go. Do I think Smith and Tabram were killed by the same man or men? Yes, I do. Uh, do I think Emily Horsnell murder was related? Yes. Then the big question becomes, are these three murders connected to the later murders, beginning with Polly Nichols? And when I look at the... Uh, uh, medical evidence of, of, of Polly Nichols, it becomes more difficult to draw a connection between them. It is different. Um, and so I go back and forth on it. I do think the murders are connected, but that's not to say that it was the same man that killed Polly Nichols, killed Martha Tabra. Um, but that doesn't mean the murders can't be connected. The whole leather apron scare is, uh, and specifically how it relates to John Pizer, is something that uh, you believe could tie some of the later canonical five murders, starting with Polly Nichols, to these earlier murders that you've been referring to, um, in that um, Pearly Paul, uh, you believe there's a possibility, anyway, that, that she might have been the first one to... Um, point to John Pizer as Leather Apron. So if you could, uh, without going into too much detail, because it is going to be a, a subject of a later podcast, kind of explain uh, to our listeners how the uh, story of Leather Apron first arose and then how John Pizer became um, identified as Leather Apron. Okay, well, uh, let's see here. Talk, well, first we'll talk about what Leather Apron is, because um, oftentimes the name Leather Apron and the name John Pizer are synonymous. <laughs> I don't think they should be. Uh, leather Apron, 
a number of years back, um, Paul Begg uh, gave a lecture and wrote up an, an article for Ripperologist uh, called Did Leather Apron Really Exist? Now, prior to uh, Paul Begg's groundbreaking work here, uh, Leather Apron, of course, was a figure that featured in uh, all the Ripper books to some extent, but usually as a side note. And um, before the name Jack the Ripper was invented and took hold, uh, the uh, killer had become called Leather Apron following the murder of Polly Nichols. And, um, you know, Paul asked the question, you know, in the title of his essay, Did, Did Leather Apron Really Exist? And he pondered a number, of, he looked at the case, and, and, and I loved his work, and I kept it in the back of my mind, although at that time when he came out with it, I wasn't too much into the leather, leather apron thing. My research for this book is what led me into that, that arena. And, uh, but he asked that question, and I think I've answered it in, in my book, Did Leather Apron Really Exist? I've traced uh, the, uh, the origins of that name um, to a small group of, of people who, um, from 18 Thrall Street, where Polly Nichols had lived, um, for quite a while, up until you know, with the weeks before her her murder, and uh, incidentally, she would have lived at one point in time with later victim Francis Coles. But uh, Polly Nichols, uh, these people, you know, showed up at uh, in Bucks Row. They looked at the body. They sat around talking, and reporters were on hand to listen to their stories. And one of the stories getting thrown around was about this guy. They didn't know his name. They called him Leather Apron. Uh, weird fellow, uh, you know, was either a butcher or worked in the uh, uh, shoe trade, you know, wore an, obviously he wore a leather apron, which is why he had that name. And uh, and they thought, you know, he's as likely as anybody to have, uh, you know, killed Nichols. And this, you know, the uh, press reporters took it, and, and especially the Star, a newspaper called The Star, one of their reporters just turned this thing. I mean, he he embellished everything they said and turned it into this semi-fictional character with these little, you know, beady eyes and just, you know, weird, weird description, but made for great reading. Other newspapers made fun of him for it. They knew they knew what was going on. And But anyways, it caught hold in the public imagination of this character named Leather Apron roaming around the, in the streets and hiding in the shadows and uh, so on and so forth. But uh, what happened is, uh, you know, and then there's, aside from this, there's, there's this little guy named John Pizer uh, who, you know, not long before had had a serious uh, surgery and spent a lot of time convalescing, and he, he was relatively weak. Uh, he was a socialist. Um, he's Jewish. And he, uh, you know, would live in various lodging houses or boarding houses and occasionally stay with relatives. Um, these relatives uh, were near neighbors of Sergeant William Thick, And that, that comes into play a little bit later. But uh, this fellow Pizer was walking along Church Street one day when he's accosted by um, a tall, straw, stalwart man and some women, and one of these women um, fingers him as leather apron. You're leather apron, you know, and uh, and they go and grab some a couple constables and start denouncing him as leather apron. And and Pizer 
you know, is like, oh, she's not, you know, what she's saying is nonsense. I know this woman. She's annoyed me on a number of occasions. And, uh, you know, and he's, he's let go by the constables who are, you know, later, of course, you know, I, I think, I'm sure they were reprimanded quite a bit for this. But, um, they, uh, you know, wouldn't let, it, it wouldn't go away. Um, someone wrote a letter to the press calling him anonymously calling himself eyewitness and claimed to have seen the whole thing but as I talk about in my book if you actually read what he's writing he had to have been a participant he couldn't have been standing far off watching all this and hearing everything seeing every facial expression his version of events was very much against Pizer and, you know whereas these women were like come off like heroes Pizer's like again this you know this evil menacing guy and and he totally leaves out the stalwart man from his description. He's not mentioned anywhere. And I thought, well, now isn't that convenient? If if eyewitness and stalwart man are in fact one and the same, which I'm pretty sure is indeed the case. But what's more intriguing is, you know, who are these women? Who are these women that that denounce Pizer as leather apron? And we don't know much about them. I mean, clearly they were East End women. Uh, we know that about them, and uh, there uh, one was older than the other. We know that from eyewitnesses' description, and uh, you know, so there's not much to go on. But uh, one of these women go to the police and denounce Pizer. It's not taken seriously until uh, this woman claims I can produce two other witnesses who saw him in the company of you know of Polly Nichols on the night of her murder. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And, and I'm sure so did the police. The police didn't give any credence to the initial statement. I don't, you know, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? Why did this woman have to produce two other witnesses before they'd investigate? Who knows? But then there's this separate item. And these, uh, these women are never named. They're never named. We never learn their identity. It's, it's kept secret. Um, however, um, in a later press report coming out later that month, it's, it's reported almost offhand that Pearly Pole had gone to the police and uh, and fingered someone not far from Bucks Row as the as the possible killer, and it says in there that she, credence was not given to her statement at the time, and but uh, then two other women, Eliza Cooper and Elizabeth Allen, come are, are brought forth to corroborate, and now the police are taking it seriously. Well, this sounds very much to me like exactly what happened to Pizer in Church Street. I don't think the Evening News realized when they published that that that's that this this information they're hearing about was something that had occurred earlier in the month and related to Pizer. I think they they they'd heard it, learned it uh, that it was a new thing, and uh, so when you put the pieces together, they fit so nicely that, uh, yes, I'm very much, I don't just think it's possible, I think it's very, very likely that it was Pearly Paul and her friends who denounced Pizer. And again, that would be the impetus of why, you know, why is it necessary for stalwart men to write this letter as eyewitness? And, why, you know, why are they trying, you know, what do they got against Pizer? I don't know, but apparently Pizer and this woman who denounced him have a history. And it's interesting to note that on August 4th, Pizer was brought up on charges, which he was found not guilty of. It was dismissed by an unknown woman. And it was on August 4th. That happens to be the day Parley Pole decided to leave the Whitechapel Infirmary. 
also um, Timothy Donovan, the the deputy of 35 Dorset Street, um, claimed to have kicked leather apron out of his home the year before, and he wanted to go and I and identify Pizer, but he was like, I don't know why the police won't let me look at the guy and tell him if it's him. Well, probably because they didn't believe him. You know, they already knew they, they had an idea something was going on here, and it had to do with 35 Dorset Street and a framing. They knew John Pizer was innocent. That's the why they didn't let Tom, Timothy Donovan go look at him, is they were sick of people pointing the finger at Pizer, and they, and all these people came from this one little group. And uh, and then, but most significantly to me, you know, and in spite of you know my. Uh, these little pieces of evidence I've thrown thrown forth, and 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 my speculation and all of that. There is no hard evidence. I don't have a document that says uh, Pearly Pole identified Pizer. <clears throat> so because of that, there out of necessity will always be some measure of doubt that that is the course of events. But you have to, if you look at the whole, all of these things, you know. Maybe all roads do lead to Dorset Street, but but you know not to twenty seven Dorset Street. You got to look at thirty five in this case, and and all roads do seem to lead there. And then you have the most astonishing thing that happened is when Sergeant William Thick, aka Johnny Upright, uh, a member of the Metropolitan uh, Police H Division, you know, out of the blue, just you know, in, in days and days after. The leather apron, you know, leather apron's name became known. He suddenly says, "Oh, you know, I know who leather apron was. It was John Pizer. I've known the man for eighteen years, and whenever anyone calls, so uses the name leather apron, they're referring to Pizer. Well, if that's true, why wasn't he pulling Pizer in or looking for him on day one when the name leather apron hit the press? Well, it's it's because uh, Pizer was not known as leather apron. That is fiction. That's a lie. Uh, reporters." Tried to find someone who knew Pizer as Leather Apron outside of, of Sergeant Thick, and they could not. In fact, everyone said he was not known as Leather Apron. Uh, so you know, it's like, but Thick was on a mission, and you know, he eventually succeeded in arresting Pizer. Uh, tried to drum up evidence on him, searched his house, looked, you know, looked at his hat collection, his his knives, and all of this, and uh, and then. Uh, Conveniently, a fellow by the name of Violinia shows up, and a uh, very, very sketchy fellow. And he says, "Oh, I saw, I saw Annie Chapman struggling with a man, um, and and I think I can identify that man." So they throw Pizer in the lineup with twelve to twenty-four other men who are pulled off the streets. <clears throat> Violina is then, you know, and Sergeant Chick, uh, Sergeant Thick was in charge of this. Identity print. He shouldn't have been, you know, I don't think, but he was. He was in charge of it. And so he escorts Violina out. Conveniently, Violina makes a beeline right to Pizer and says, Yep, that's the guy. That's the guy who was fighting with the victim. Well, this is pretty damning evidence. Um, if it's true, it's it's quite damning. And, but uh, Aberlene and others sat around and talked to this Violina fellow, and the man is desperate to see the victim's body. And he keeps changing his story and changing his story. Then it becomes two men were on the scene. And then, you know, he's a, a just a casual observer, and then he is himself involved in a, in a, in a fracas. And, and so they're like, this guy is lying through his teeth. <clears throat> and they don't believe, they know, he's, they know he's lying. They won't let him see the body. And... Uh, 
and finally Ned disappears. Well, Pizer is like, man, I'm going to sue that guy. He says in the press, I'm going to sue that guy. I'm going to sue anyone, in fact, who calls me letter because I'm not. And the problem was Pizer, who was in, in their custody, you know, they were like, we have to let him go. He's clearly not guilty. There's no evidence against this man whatsoever. Um, I do believe that uh, Sergeant William Thicke paid Violini to come in and lie. I mean, they, I don't see any other way around that. Uh, although, I, how did he pick him? I mean, he made a beeline to him and said, that's him. Well, that's because he was pointed out to him by Thicke. I mean, you know, again, do I have a document that says, yes, Thicke, you know, I don't have that. What I do have, though, is Pizer in there. He can't leave the police station because there's a mob out there waiting who believes he's the murderer. They believe he's Leather Apron. Because the press told him so. William Thicke in the press said, this is Leather Apron. Why wouldn't they believe that? So his safety is threatened. And they reach a deal. They will let Pizer appear at the Annie Chapman inquest, uh, which he was not a witness. I mean, he has nothing to do with that murder, but yet he's a witness at the inquest. Why? To clear his name. This is not an obligation of the coroner. <laughs> So there was a deal made between the police and the coroner, and there was a deal made between the police and John Pizer. You will go in there. We will clear your name of any uh, involvement with this murder, but you got to stop denying your leather apron. And you can't sue us, by the way. Pizer goes on to sue the press, as he promised he would. He does not sue Violinia. Um, because to do so, what do you think Violina is going to do? He's going to come out and say, well, I only gave evidence because Sergeant Thick, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he doesn't sue Thick, who also named him as Leather Apron in the press. Just He just he just sues the newspapers. He makes a lot of money. But look at his appearance at the inquest. Look at that. He is escorted to the inquest by Thick. He is made to sit next to Thick in the hall, and then when they're called in, uh, he, he sits next to Thick. In the back, he gives his evidence. The coroner, are you, you know, are you leather apron? He says yes. And then uh, Pizer goes on at the very tail end. He starts trying to say something. He's like, I've known Thick for eighteen years, and and I know he's, you know, Pizer's getting ready to try and say, I just can't believe that he would say this about me. But the coroner cuts him off. That's enough. You said all you need to say. You can go. He is goes back, sits next to Thick, where they talk amicably amongst, amongst each other. Uh, there is still strong resentment against Pizer, so Thick escorts him home. In other words, Pizer is never once out of the handling of Sergeant Thick this entire time. Um, but the end result is what the, you know because Pizer stood. The press was already on to the idea that for Pizer was being set up. In fact, the one newspaper even suggested that police authorities assigned the job of framing Pizer to William Thicke. I don't buy that for a second. There's no, I, not at all. Um, but I can understand why the press is starting to look at this. Uh, so, you know, something smells funny. But because Pizer stood up in a, in a public coroner's court and said, yes, I'm Leather Apron, all that goes away. They can no longer accuse, you know, it all goes away. And it did. Do but you have your... Sorry, do you have an opinion as to why he was asked to account for his whereabouts at the Nichols and Chapman, um, the times at which they were murdered, but not asked about Tabram and Emma Smith? Um, that's, that is, I don't know that he wasn't uh, asked about that. I, I know that at that time, both the Nichols and Tabram, or Nichols and Chapman cases were, um, 
you know, the inquests were occurring. These were, these are happening right now. Uh, you're, you know, because Pizer wasn't accused. There was no witnesses that put him near Martha Tabron, but he, you know, there were these witnesses that accused him of complicity in the Nichols murder. So if he could prove that, which he did, by the way, that he could not have committed the Nichols murder, you know, that all in the Chapman murder, he had an alibi for that too. That all goes away because that was the, the here and now question. And uh, so that's all that the publicly that, you know, that, that the press cared about. So in private, was he asked, where were you, you know, on bank holiday and blah, blah, blah. Probably so. Probably so. Um, but of more immediate concern was he's being accused of the Nichols murder outrightly. So he has to prove he didn't do that. And he did. Uh, of course, he had nothing to do with this. They, of course, the big question is why Pizer? If you're going to frame someone, why this guy? Who knows? Uh, you know, there, there's probably a, a, an awesome explanation for that. Again, why did William Thick accuse him? Because Pearlie Paul already had. He was already the guy who'd been fed to the police by Pearlie Paul, who didn't, who uh, obviously didn't have as much credibility as she once had. But then, if you get a cop backing her story up, um, all of a sudden, it you know, it you can't ignore it. You absolutely cannot ignore it. And the police did take the whole leather apron story seriously. They investigated other suspects as potential leather aprons. Um, Aberling favored Eisenschmidt. He didn't seem to give two you know what's about about Pizer being leather apron. Um, the news report I quoted earlier about Pearlie Pohl, uh interestingly says no suspicion is attached to or, or uh, you know uh, him at present. And the police reports say the exact same thing in relation to Pizer at the same time. So I don't think there's much doubt that, in my opinion, I don't have much doubt that Pearlie Paul is the one who denounced Pizer. And then you have William Thick coming in behind her to support her. And you go, what is the connection between these two totally disparate individuals? You've got, and, and if you look at pictures of William Thick, he was way more handsome than his colleagues. He was clearly a ladies' man. And, uh, then you look at, you know, Connolly, we don't have a photo, and that might not be such a bad thing based on the descriptions of her. But she's this lowly, east and lowest of the low, dregs of society. But what is the one thing that these two individuals have in common? They both have a relationship with John Satchel that goes back years. In 1881, when John Satchel and John McCarthy of Miller's Court fame found themselves in the eyes of the law for an illegal boxing match in which a couple of policemen who tried to stop it were beaten up, uh, they, were, they, they, they were facing some jail time here. But uh, to the rescue comes William Thick, who gives them great character references so that leniency is given. They never do any jail time. They pay fines and go home. And that's unheard of then. It's unheard of now for a constable to or a sergeant, anyone with the police, to give good character references to people who have are involved in a case where other uh, policemen were injured. Uh, you just don't do that. And Thick had to, there. I'm certain there were repercussions to him from his colleagues for this, but he he didn't do it out of the goodness of his heart. I'm sure he was paid and he owed them favors. And of course, if you read my book, you'll see other sources blatantly pointing out. Thick was on the take. Thick slept with prostitutes. Thick did, and Thick had a reputation for fitting people up for crimes, uh, and that goes outside of leather apron. Uh, he had a he was good at this. 
He had done it before. He had done it since. So did William Thick intentionally set up Pizer for Leathery? Or for, you know, yes, he did. Uh, the evidence bears that out. Why he did it and on whose behalf, he didn't just wake up one day and go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to risk my entire career and reputation to fit up some dude for, for these murders. No, he had to have a motivation. There had to be something bigger than him operating behind him. And if it wasn't the police force, what's the other powerful entity he was associated with? The landlords, the guys who really ran the East End. And so all of these pieces, it's all they're all interconnecting. And you know, maybe for a number of these things you could say, okay, well this little piece of evidence individually we could, you know, find an, a different, a mundane explanation for, and maybe you could. In fact, I'm sure I could, but collectively you can't, and that's what makes a circumstantial case. Most trials today, uh, the argument is, is built on circumstance and not direct evidence, like a confession or a videotape of them committing the crime or DNA. It's circumstantial, and people are convicted of that all the time. And those are often the best cases because you have so many different points of evidence pointing at the same thing. And that's uh, what I see going on here, and that's what I've documented in my book. You know, again, all of... And none of... The, it's not like I've uncovered a, a stash of documents here that no one's seen before. Virtually everything, evidentially speaking, in my book has been in the public domain, some of it for decades and centuries, and some, you know, some for a number of years. Uh... I've just looked at it a different way and kind of put a lot of pieces together. Uh, and it was because of the perspective I took after my initial investigation of the Tatum case. Again, I went back and said, okay, I've got this new perspective. Let's, let's take a look at this evidence. And wow, did a lot of things open up and a, a disparate pieces of evidence that just didn't make sense suddenly came together and made perfect sense. Well, one last point I want to make about Leather Apron um, is that if there was this group think mentality, is how I'll describe it, amongst the residences of the the, the residences of the lodging houses, um, because of the amount of desperation that was going on, I mean, like you had pointed out in your book, um, that they were probably willing to go to extremes further than we would in this day and age, just simply to have a bed to sleep in the following night. Um, you know, they were, it's almost like, as far, well, I'll tie this in, but as, as far as going back to Emma Smith, um, you know, ask, almost like asking your parents for permission to take her to the hospital is, this, exactly. is, is yeah. essentially how they, they, is how their date, how their existence was dictated. They didn't want to disturb, they didn't want to do anything that the lodging house proprietors would disagree with because it would put them at risk of not being able to have a place to sleep that night. And that, and that to most of these women was of the most utmost importance. They could care less if Emma Smith was bleeding profusely in front of them from between her legs uh, and not do anything to help her if it would jeopardize their uh, bed at that lodging house that night. Well, yeah, um, and you've hit on something here because uh, it's uh, important to understand the, uh, that these lodging house keepers were involved in a lot of crime. Uh, you know, they weren't just landlords, you know, uh, gambling, uh, prostitution. I mean, everything they were involved in <coughs> was criminal. They were also police informants. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, they were police informants themselves. Yeah. So, well, so I, I was thinking that if Leather Apron was a man who was going around, I mean, whether he might have existed, sure, but if the descriptions that you read about in the press are accurate, in which there was an individual who people could identify walking around brutalizing the women who were the residents of the lodging houses, I would have think that it would have been Leather Apron that would have showed up on the landing at George Yard Buildings with 39 stab wounds, um, not Margaret Tabron, you know. That's, that's a good point, and... Uh, you know, and, and another question you raise is, uh, that has been raised before, Paul Begg raised this in his essay, uh, is that uh, if Leather Apron existed, uh, you know, as this, you know, evil entity stalking and beating up women, why was he not named uh, by someone as a suspect in the Martha Tabram investigation or following Emma Smith? Why only after Polly Nichols was murdered did he suddenly, this name came into existence? And I think the answer to that is, since again, I've traced the origins of this back to the women of 18 Thrall Street, uh, I think that this character was someone local to that. They weren't involved in the investigation at the Tabor. No one knocked on their door. There was no reason to. And, and they're not going to go volunteer stuff to the police. Again, keep in mind, these are people involved, not not all of them, but a lot of them in, in criminal activity. And you just didn't go snitch anyway. But uh, they were like, you know, I think this leather apron guy might have done it. And I don't, I don't think that they were lying. I don't think, I think that this was sincere, a, a knee-jerk reaction to the murder of their friend. And, you know, so they, they said this guy, we don't know his name, but he's this weird dude who scares us. And we could see him having done this, and then and then everything else was just invented by the press, um, and then transposed by Pearly Paul and and Thick onto Pizer, uh, you know. But uh, the literature on Leather Apron is limited. Paul Bay did his essay. More recently, Simon Wood um, published an exceptional essay uh, in again in Ripperologist magazine. By the way, people listening, go to ripperologist.biz and enter your email. And you, it's a it's a free subscription to this uh, uh, the absolutely indispensable journal on ripperology. It comes out every couple months. It's an ebook. It can be emailed to you. Uh, absolutely indispensable. But Simon would publish this article where he took, you know, he kind of built on what Paul Begg had started and took it to the next level. And and then I what I tried to do on on their backs uh, on the backs of these two awesome writers, I tried to do the same. I tried to. Because I, 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 you know, through my research, I had stuff they didn't have, so I was able to take it to yet the next level and answer some of the questions they posed um, while asking some new ones of my own. But I, I think in my book, we have the fullest picture to date of of the the whole leather apron saga and, and, and all of this, uh, you know. But uh, uh, it's an enigma. It's an enigma. I think uh, too, for too long, the Leather Apron episode has been underappreciated. It's it's a side note. Uh, Tabram and Emma Smith likewise have been created er, treated as side notes. They're a prologue. They're a prologue to the Ripper murders, and I don't know that that's true, you see. Uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe that's why we've never been able to catch them. You know, people say you've got to look at the first victim, Uh to find the the serial killer, if there is a serial, you have to look at the first victim, and if we're looking at Nichols and she's a victim number three or four, we might have a hard time finding that serial killer. 
what if we take it back, you know, trace it not only to Emma Smith, but go back a step further to Emily Horsnell, again, only discovered recently by Deborah Arif. And then we the only, you start at Emily and work your way forward, and there's a name that keeps coming. There's names that keep coming up, and those names are John Satchel, Pearlie Paul, uh, you know, Daniel Lewis. Uh, these names keep coming up. And then you get into the Ripper murders, and they keep going on. And there's Satchel's buddy, John McCarthy, in the mix, man, with Mary Kelly. Uh, and I think uh, you had mentioned before we went on air, you had a question for me about Mary Kelly, didn't you? Yeah, I did. We received a question from Cameron in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, in which he was questioning um, her the the hunt from elusive hunt for Mary Kelly and her true name and how uh, basically um, and it, it does tie into some of the holds that the lodging house keepers might have had over the residence. But if Mary Kelly uh, was uh, supposedly in the receipt of letters from her family back in Ireland, uh, would they have been addressed to her using a pseudonym? Or, you know, how how is that story of letters even possible if she was going under an assumed name? That that type of uh, question was raised. So, Okay, well, I think uh, it's, it's relatively simple. Um, for, for Mary Kelly's relatives... To write her, they had to know her address, which tells us that Mary Kelly first wrote to them to say, here's my, here's where you can write me at. And in the course of that letter, she uh, let's assume for just a minute that Mary Kelly is not her real name, which is, I think, what Cameron is getting at. Uh, let's assume it's not her real name. Then Mary Kelly would have simply said, um, I'm going under the name of Mary Kelly, so if you write me, please address it to Mary Kelly. Which, uh, you know, in these, these day and times, that might seem odd because we live in an age post-social security. I don't know what they ca might call it in the UK, but uh, where we're given, you know, from the day we're born, we're assigned numbers, we're assigned identities. It's normal for us to, you know, you have to have photo identification. Everything is documented. And that wasn't the case in 1888. You simply were who you said you were at that moment. That's who you were. And because uh, nobody carried identification. So, uh, and it was understood that if you're moving into a new area or whatever, you might change your name or go by a different name to even protect your relatives. So if Mary Kelly's name were in fact not Mary Kelly, um, her family would have understood and would have mailed their letters to Mary Kelly. Having said that, um, her name may very well have in fact been Mary Jane Kelly, Mary Jeanette Kelly, or something like that. Uh, John McCarthy, I think, um, knew her very well. It's been suggested they were actually related, um, which is, is, is not impossible. John McCarthy and his friends, John Cooney, another lodging housekeeper involved in the case, had relatives on the London stage who were very well-known, very popular. Uh, Mary Kelly, it was rumored in the press after her death that she claimed to have had a relative on the London stage, which means uh, she may have been related to John McCarthy. She may or have been related to John Cooney. She may have been related to neither. But uh, I frankly think John, I don't think she was related. To, in my personal opinion, that's all this is. She was not related to John McCarthy. I do think John McCarthy was having sex with her. Uh, just as he was having sex, uh, I believe, with Mary Ann Austin, again, murdered in 1901. 
and and other women. Uh, you know, that was one of the perks of what they did. Just like William Thick availed himself uh, of these, and incidentally, William Thick is the only contemporary officer to ever be named by uh, anyone at the time as having been Jack the Ripper. He, Mr. Hazelwood wrote letters to the police claiming his belief that Thick was Jack the Ripper. I don't think there's a. I, I don't think he was. But it's fascinating to think that he would be seen that way. And I think that's a result of his dark dealings. Um, but uh, Cameron out there in Glasgow, you live in a beautiful land, and, and I appreciate the question. Um, unfortunately, I don't know any more about Mary Kelly than you do, and quite possibly no less if you've made this an area of study for yourself. But um, to answer your question, yes, her family would have written letters to her there at her request. And if she had requested them to write them under the name Mary Kelly, uh, they would have. Having said that, if John McCarthy did know her real name, he he wouldn't have volunteered that to the police. And you had um, mentioned that you had been... Re uh, the response to your book must be pretty um, exciting for you to experience. First, let me say that. Um, it, it is being touted as... Uh, I think Paul Begg said it was already here we're just only in march and it's the best book of 2014 so uh what uh what other response or and or questions uh, or comments that you've um have been uh asked to provide to your readers i i know that a lot of your readers um are people fairly new to the case um since you're a member of a lot of other uh, groups besides the Jack the Ripper websites, um, so your your book is getting out there to people who might be unfamiliar with the murders. Some in some cases, I think I've read it's the first Ripper book some people have bought. Um, what are some of the uh, questions that that you've had to answer from uh, readers, like uh, privately or on? different websites like Facebook and things like that. Well, uh, you know, and you, you hit on something there, too, when you talked about, uh, you know, readers outside of, you know, the North. You know, a lot of us who are involved in the Internet community of Jack the Ripper, uh, like on jtrforums.com, casebook.org, it's real easy to forget that we are but a very, very small group of Ripper readership Uh and because we talk to each other all the time, and it, it, it's it, like when I wrote this book, I'm thinking of them, you know, I'm thinking of the, but I'm also aware that there's this entire other world, thank goodness, otherwise I would have only sold about 30 copies, you know, but there's this entire world out there of people very, who hang on, who, who set back, I mean, take a look at these threads you contribute to, folks, uh, and look at the number of views some of them get. There might only be three people contributing to the thread, but you'll suddenly see that it's been viewed by a thousand people. And and this is this is also why some of us get uh, confrontational sometimes. Uh, you know, we, we we seem to be getting harsh on someone who's posting their opinions as though they were fact. But it's it's not because of our own egos that we're doing this. It's we're conscious of the impact this will have on the case overall. Uh, we've spent a lot of time trying to destroy myths and get to the truth, and 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 you know, when, uh, so whenever anyone comes out with uh, you know a bunch of crap and tries to pass it off to you, uh, you know, as a golden truth, you know, we're going to jump to the de defense of the truth on that. 
but at, at the same time, we're going to fight amongst each other. That's what we do. But I recently, I've only recently gotten involved in the Facebook world, and I only did so because I knew I would have to start promoting my book. And I found these pages, uh, like Steve Jessup's, I call it Steve Jessup's page because that's how I think of it, but it was actually started by a fellow named Dennis Bardem and, and uh, you know, Mike Covell, the well-known film actor, is also involved in that. And, uh, you know, but Steve Jessup is the driving force of this wonderful uh, Ripperology and More page on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I go on there and I'm thinking it's going to be the usual group from the forums. And I'd never heard of Steve Jessup before because he doesn't post on those. You know, but he's this—he's this—you know—really avid Ripperologist. Yeah, real. He's a, more of a fan of, of Ripper books and and the fiction too, and all of that. Uh, you know, and there's all these people posting on there. I'd never heard of them before, and and, and they, a lot of them had, had never heard of me before. A lot of them had and told me they had, but I'd never heard of them. It's because they're readers, and and it reminded me of like, wow, you know, we do have an awesome responsibility. Those 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 of us who for whatever reason we decide to publish on the case, whether it be for Ripperologist or our own books, we have an awesome responsibility to those folks to not to do our best not to steer them wrong. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I'll tell you something that uh, when my book came out, uh, and, and, you know, uh, like if you look at my Facebook page for my book, which is facebook.com backslash Ripperbooks, uh, you know, I have a lot of, of, of members there. And... And I started getting feedback from people I had never heard of, and and I and and I also you know got feedback like you said a review from Paul Begg, um, Stuart P. Evans took the time to post a review on Amazon.com, which by the way, us, us you know independent authors we need that, <laughs> we need the reviews. It's extremely important to us, uh, you know, preferably positive but honest. We only, we want honest reviews. Uh, but as many as we can get, so that's just a word out. But he, you know, Stuart P. Evans posted on there uh, very nice things about my book. But uh, you know, equally, and I think maybe even more important to me was to see people I'd never heard of who actually spent their money to buy my book, uh, took their own time out of their lives to read it, to ingest it, to think about it, and then to go online and talk about it. Uh, uh, you know, there's that. That's that's pretty awesome. Whether they're telling me I'm full of crap or or they're agreeing with what I say or or what have you, the fact that like uh, that they did this, uh, and and I have to say, very few people have told me I'm full. I don't know that anyone's told me I'm full of crap, but there are thankfully people who don't. I you know just arbitrarily agree with what I say because I say it convincingly. That's I don't want that. Uh, I like Edward Stowe, an exceptional researcher tearing me apart on the, on the forums, you know, uh, and, and he and I go back and forth. He probably thinks I'm mad at him, and, it, you know, the reality is he's going through my book and studying it, and that that is a huge compliment to me, and he's questioning things, and that's what he should do because uh, that's what I did, and that, that's how this came about. We, we should question these things. We should look at them and see if there's any substance to them. I published this book because I do believe uh, the things I say, for the most part, are founded in in, in substance. Uh, there is truth to it. Um, having said that, it's not a complete truth. So I need assistance from other researchers like Edward, and, and who's created a, a thread on John Satchel, and he and Deborah Reef are throwing up all kinds of stuff I've never seen before. You know, uh, there's threads right now on, on Pearly Pole. People are talking about this stuff. 
uh, whether good or bad, uh, you know, uh, on, you know, eventually the good stuff will come to the surface. The rest will kind of float away. And, uh, and so I do think that this book will have resonance in, in the, in the scene, uh, history, but, you know, we think of history as, as something, history is something immovable. It's something that's already happened. All we can do is try and learn about it and understand it better than we currently do. Uh, but it's no different than pop music. History, uh, as, as in terms of books and how we digest it, is absolutely the same as music. Um, you have your one-hit wonders, you know, or you have your books that come out and everyone sells it and talks about it, makes fun of it, and it goes away and is forgotten about. Uh, you know, and then you have the ones that that stick around. Uh, you know, it's like my son. He tells me he loves '80s music. He loves '90s music. They're so much better than today's music because there's so much crap coming out today. But what I point out to him is, <clears throat> he's viewing the music from the '80s and the '90s through a filter. It's there's been a filtering process that happened. When I was alive in the '80s and the '90s, I heard all these great songs he's talking about. But I also heard the other ninety percent, which was you know a lot of it was crap. But because it was crap, it disappeared. The radio stopped playing it. So they're only playing the best of the best. And that's what, that's to him what the 80s and 90s were. But that's not my experience. History is the same. Your Prince Jacks, your this and that that come out, these books. Um, people buy them. The author makes some money. Uh, and then, but they don't stand the test of time. They don't have substance to them and they disappear. Uh, you know, whereas other books, uh, a much smaller portion of them survive into the common era that we have now. And those will, and, and the filtering process is ongoing. So the question, you know, is, you know, to that I ask myself is, did I just write something that is a flavor of the month? Or is this something that a researcher who's not even alive yet will one day pick up and go, Hey, there's something to this, and will he take it to the next level? You do, does that make sense? Because that's if, if, if you're writing a book, I would suggest you ask yourself that question. And you know, if you just want to see your name on something, uh, go write a fiction book. You know, go, or, or but, but but stay out of here. Or you're going to have to put up with us. Um, but I've been asked a lot of questions, uh, namely, you know, I touched on this earlier. Why don't I think Pearlie Pohl killed these women? Because and I say in the book, if she had been a man, she would have been arrested. And I do believe that. And uh, <clears throat> But she wasn't a man. She was a woman. Jack the Ripper, or, or whatever you want to call him, the Whitechapel murderer or murderers uh, uh, were almost certainly male. That doesn't mean she didn't participate in a murder. She could have killed Martha Dabram. Um, she may have been on the scene of one of them, but I don't, I don't have any reason to know that or, or necessarily to... To think that I think her role was more of, uh, you know, um, after the accessory after the fact, so to speak, and possibly before the fact if she knew a murder was going to happen. But then that raises the question: Were these premeditated murders? Was Martha Tabram a victim or was she a target? I don't know. Uh, Polly Nichols was she a victim? Was she a target? I don't know. What I do know is that according to uh, one of Polly Nichols' friends and the last person to see her alive. She was worried, you know. She was worried about something. Nichols was worried about something, and 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 that something had something to do with the lodging house that she had just recently moved into. She didn't like it there. Um, she wanted to get away from there. Now, for all these years, we have thought that that she was talking about the White House, but she wasn't. 
she was talking about 35 Dorset Street. Uh, Emily didn't know that's where she was staying. Why didn't Polly want to say that? Why did she keep it a secret? Um, why was she so desperate to get away from that house that she was back at 18 Thrall Street begging for for room and board on the night of her murder? Why was she, in, you know... And then she shows up blasted drunk later. Um, she she wasn't going back to 35 Dorset Street. That's all I know. She wasn't going back there. I don't know why. Um, anywhere but there, it seems. So, and then she's then she's murdered. Is there a connection? Yeah, you know, it seems to me like there, there's every possibility there is. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned. Uh and it's evident in your book, uh, you know, it, it's re- it was really refreshing, your book, to read in the respect that not ashamed to admit that you don't know the facts, that there's not enough that has been sco- discovered yet. Maybe it's out there. You don't have the resources or it just has, you know, there could be an, an archive thrown online tomorrow that could turn the entire case upside down. Uh, that we just don't have access to, and you're really uh, honest in your book in saying that, you know, uh, uh, to your readers that, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but this is an avenue that might need further exploration. Um, maybe down the road we'll discover, um, you know, that I'm wrong or that I'm right. Um, and your book led me to go back and reread Simon Wood's piece on leather apron in Ripperologist that you mentioned earlier. So, so it will hopefully spur this re-examination of some of the earlier, um, murders preceding the canonical five. Um, so if you'd like to talk a, a little bit about where you see avenues of research headed in the field how you view ripperology as evolving. Sure. Well, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you're definitely hitting on some things here. You talk about Simon Wood. I mean, here's a guy who's, you know, from my perspective, he's been around, been around forever. Uh, he was there in the seventies to debunk the uh, myth of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Royal conspiracy. Uh, he was there in the nineties to help, Debunk uh, to some extent the the Maybrick diary, the James Maybrick idea that he was that he wrote a diary and was Jack the Ripper, because uh, the diarist had had referred to some of Simon's uh, earlier research in in, in the book, and uh, and then now Simon, uh, you know, is going up, now we're in the twenty first century, and he's continuing to put out fresh new rele- relevant ideas. And uh, and he takes a lot of flack for he's taken a lot of flack for me over the years uh, and everyone else and, and 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 you know as we all do when again we step out on a limb <clears throat> but he's one of my favorite writers because he does that and I don't agree with a lot of stuff he says you know ten years ago he was there uh, taking on Francis Tumblety and created an amazing article called Smoke and Mirrors um, that I know has made some people not such big fans of his who, who believe Tumblety was the Ripper, but he wasn't, you know. But these things are important. You have to do this. And Ripperology, like anything else, comes in trends uh, as, as our, it evolves is what it does. Uh, it moves through phases like anything else. And the most important thing that's happened to Ripperology in recent times has been the advent of online databases. Um, 
that's that's so new and and it's and 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 most and as we find tons and tons and tons of stuff most of the this is not even online yet so there's so many more discoveries that will happen there's no question of that um but we've got people like uh, the late the uh, you know Chris Scott um you know who 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 will recently passed and is going to be just you know it, we're just agonizing over it not only because he was an amazing person but uh, the loss of his skill to this field uh, cannot be measured uh, you know Paul Kearney who we know as Nemo on the forums had done a tremendous amount of research on a very interesting suspect named William Granger that I still hope will, his work will see the light of day he recently passed. And, and fortunately, still with us, we have you know the likes of Keith Skinner and, and Deborah Arif, Rob Clack, Neil. All these people are constantly finding new stuff, and it just blows you away because this case is 126 years old. But uh, you know, the, like I mentioned in the book, uh, because of technology, the further we get away from the Victorian era, the closer we're able to see it, because all this information becomes available to us. And my book would absolutely not exist without the people I've just mentioned um, who did took the time and did the digging to find all this stuff uh, that I reference in the book. It, it simply wouldn't exist. And, and myself as a ripperologist, uh, so much the better for it. But it, it's, I, you have to be conscious that what we have now, we're going to have so much more in the future. And that's why I had to get this work out was so it could get in, in the conscious of these people who I respect it would at least be in the back of their mind. So as they make new discoveries, they might go, oh, this is relevant. And, you know, and that's already, and the book's only been out six weeks. That's already happening. Um, you know, not necessarily because of my book, but it's a, like Deborah Reef is researching Timothy Donovan, the 35 Dorset Street lodging house keeper, um, to find out if he's the same Timothy Donovan who, who uh, beat a woman. And, and guess who showed up at this person's, um, you know, trial to, to give him a character reference, Sergeant William Thick. We don't know if they're the same person. It may be totally irrelevant, but it might be extremely relevant. So that's where we're moving. Now, I think with my book coming out, which looks at non-canonical victims, and by pure coincidence, uh, one month later, just this month, uh, another book came out by none other than, you know, Paul Begg, who I, who I, I keep mentioning, uh, and I sound like a fanboy, uh, and maybe I am to some extent, but Paul Begg and John Bennett, uh, you know, the old and the new. I don't want to call Paul old, but I mean, he he was pre-centennial, and John Bennett uh, has proved himself over the last 10, 15 years, again, to be one of the absolutely just indispensable researchers to the field. They've paired together to write books. And their latest offering is in my is my favorite of theirs. It's called Jack the Ripper: The Forgotten Victims. They spend only nine pages of the book talking about the canonicals. Uh, the rest is all just non-canonical goodness. And this is a book I need um, as as a ripperologist, so that I can, uh, you know, I you know, until I did my book, I hadn't studied Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, you know, and I still am totally ignorant uh, on Francis Coles. Rose, my all these uh, other other women, you know, I'm not an expert on their cases yet. I am on Elizabeth Stride. I put myself against anyone on that case, but all these others, I really need to learn my stuff. So this book is absolutely indispensable. 
Uh, and I do see that becoming a trend. Um, you know, uh, there's a book that's been written by S. Ryan Gorier called, uh, uh, well, I don't know, it's the Tim's Torso Murders or something to that effect. It's a book about those. He's researched it since the 90s. He's trying to get that book out. I can't wait to read it. Um, Deborah Arif and, and Rob Clack, uh, also experts uh, on the, the torso murders, which I'm extremely fascinated about, but more ignorant about than I'd care to be. Uh, I'd like to, to learn everything there is to know about them from these three individuals who've studied them for years. And maybe someday they'll get a, their, their book out on those cases and we'll all be the better for it. Um, you know, uh, Neil Bell um, is, has uh, extensively, extensively researched uh, the police the forces of, of, you know, the Victorian era. He's, I mean, uh, just an encyclopedia of knowledge. He's one of the people I handed my early manuscript over to, him, Rob, and Deborah, and, and, and said, well, you know, show me where I've gone wrong here. And he was able to point out a number of things, and, and it made my book the better for it. Uh, you know, but uh, he's an extremely well-rounded ripperologist, but now he's also an expert on the police. So when he puts out his book, uh, that'll be a new resource for us. And this is where, you know, I see ripperology going. There's also a current trend, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anti-suspect trend is what I would call it. And I do consider it a trend. It'll, it'll pass, and then it'll come back again. But the big thing right now is, um, you know, hating on suspect books. Uh, you know, uh, we see a trend coming out of books written about a suspect but to argue that he was not Jack the Ripper versus, of course, the usual trend that he was. Uh, Prince of Quacks came out a number of years back arguing that Francis, and convincingly so, that Francis Tumblety was not Jack the Ripper. Most recently we have Helena's book uh, on George Chapman uh, that has come out, an exquisitely produced book. Uh, it's a biography of the wife poisoner, George Chapman, who was also a police suspect. You know, Aberlene liked him for the murders, but he was not Jack the Ripper. He was not Jack the Ripper. And, uh, and if you don't believe me, go buy Helena's book and, uh, and, and read for yourself. This is a new trend, and, eh, you know, it, it is what it is. Does it interest me personally? Not really, because, you know, I already knew these guys weren't Jack the Ripper. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I think... Uh, uh, you know, the actor, Mike Covell, we were talking about earlier, uh, has, a, from what I hear, a very long, detailed book on Deonston, who we are also talking about earlier, coming out. And no surprise, you know, of course, Deonston was not Jack the Ripper. I, but I want to know who was. Uh, that's what intrigues me. This is important, though. This research that Mike Covell did is so important because if he can show us Deonston wasn't Jack the Ripper, then we can scratch him off the list. We have to make that suspect pool smaller. So this is a, a trend that I'm not necessarily involved in myself, but it is very, very healthy. Uh, we just have to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and because somebody was Jack the Ripper. Uh, somebody or somebodies were Jack the Ripper and, and or the Whitechapel murderer. Uh, and we can't lose sight of that. So uh, while we're... You know, scratching these names off the list, we also have to keep, we also not have to just scratch someone off the list just because that's what we do now. It's the trend. You know, I, I've uh, made Charles Legrand popular in recent years in, in, 
and not popular in terms of everyone thinks he's the Ripper, popular in terms of telling me he was not, not the Ripper. People line up to do that. And, uh, you know, and I, I do plan to put out a book about him. Is, 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 do I think he's the most fascinating, interesting suspect, suspect to date? Absolutely, Un- unquestionably. And the reason is, is I'm not merely taking some guy and putting him into frame. He worked hard to put himself into frame. Uh, in these murders. He is part of Ripper literature and I believe he was a significant part of the case. Did he actually kill any of the women? I don't know that. Uh, could he have? Absolutely. That's what, actually, actually one, of the, one of the questions I w- was going to ask is um, since your uh, publication of the Bank Holiday Murders uh, like I had said in our introduction you had initially teased us with three books that were coming out. How would a and now I guess you, you've temporarily shelved the Strive book. This book was supposedly only you had referred to as just like a pamphlet. <laughs> uh, I'm glad it expanded to be a little bit larger than a pamphlet. Um, and then and now you're referring to your big book. Now, whether that's the book on the right. brand or not, um, how how are, are can you... Uh, um, Convince us as readers that that there will be, you know, the bank holiday murders is is is, is huge. Uh, if you can convince yourself of the implications, if this if something like this was going on, um, it's it's not an easy suspect theory. Um, it makes the people who want to pick up this book to get an easy solution to the Jack the Ripper case will be disappointed because it makes it even more confusing. Um, how how are you approaching your big book, whether that's the grand one or not? Um, how's the bank holiday murders is you know uh, going to slide in there? Is I, I hear what you're saying, and uh, well, you know, first of all, I don't think I ever referred to the bank holiday murders as a pamphlet. I would call it a, a small book because to me, 200 pages is a small book. Uh, the uh, what I'll uh, refer to as the Legrand book, which it really isn't. I mean, Legrand will be a big part of it, but it, it, the intention of that book will be me looking in my my own style at the different murders and kind of doing what I've done with Elizabeth Stride, which is is pulling it apart uh, and putting it back together with, with new information and new perspective. And what I did with Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, doing the same thing with the the, the canonicals uh, in some of the later murders as well. You know, Polly Nichols, was there an actual autopsy performed on her? I don't think so. Uh, you know, so be stuff like that we're going to talk about. And and that's that's going to, that has never changed. The idea is I'm going to have an objective look at the victims and then I'm going to say, oh, here's this guy Legrand, by the way. Let's take a look at him because it's not just the murders. He wrote the From Hell letter. Uh, that's him. He did that. Uh, he was involved in the whole Batty Street Lodger fracas, which uh, was where the name The Lodger came from for, uh, you know, uh, Stuart Evans' book. And much has been written about. Uh, Rob House talks about the, the the Batty Street Lodger in his in his awesome book. Uh, you know, that's Robert House. Uh, you know, if you don't have his book, go to Amazon, type in the name Robert House, and, and buy it. Uh, Scotland Yard's prime suspect. But... Uh, you know, here's Legrand in the midst of all of this. He just keeps showing up. He's he shows up. You've seen the movie From Hell, and you've seen them talk about grapes. Oh, he fed him grapes. The grapes thing comes from Legrand, you know, and 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 he's all over the place. And he also happened to be a psychopath. 
uh, who in 80, 1887, the year before the murders, was beating prostitutes on the open street. And in 1889, he was trying to uh, blow them up with a bomb, writing letters to the commissioner, talking about burning down buildings. You know, he was just a nutcase, but he was a very brilliant nutcase, very uh, dangerous, dangerous man, unlike most Ripper suspects who aren't particularly dangerous. But I, the question that is, you brought it up, a good question is people are like, okay, the Bank Holiday murders is just a, some attempt to dovetail this in with Legrand, and the answer is absolutely not. When I was writing this book, Legrand, I put all that out of my mind because I didn't, I didn't know where this would lead. Yeah, not necessarily is it an attempt to dovetail it into Legrand, but will the re readers of your eventual Legrand book stop and think, hey, wait a minute, Tom. What about the bank holiday murders? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand um, them on a silver platter because you know uh, what I'm saying. I mean, well, you, there is, there you is establish a, a kind of pattern of well, uh, there are, subterfuge yeah, there. involving the lodging house keepers, the residences of the lodging house, and the police. Um, and, and readers of your f uh, future book on Legrand will want to see um, the those two pieces of the bank holiday murders being one piece of the puzzle and the Legrand piece fit together. Yes. Uh, because like yourself, we're just looking for a solution to this thing. And if I'm reading the bank holiday murders and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this Tom Westcott guy thinks he solved this thing. Um, even if you don't yes. think uh, that, uh, but if, if the re <laughs> if your reader gets that kind of opinion, uh, you know, based on your writing style and how it's presented that, oh, Tom thinks he solved this thing. Then when we read the Legrand or, or your big book down the road, uh, you know, I just wanted to, the, uh, asking myself, what did, did, did Tom just forget about everything he's just written in the bank? No, <laughs> Where's Satchel? He well, had his fingers in all this as well. One yeah. of the here's the thing. Here's the thing. The the reason for the Bank Holidays book is because there was just too much stuff to put into that book. Um, so now I have the luxury of being able to condense it. All the stuff that somebody I can condense it into a couple chapters and just tell everyone if if you want to learn more about this, go read the Bank Holiday. That uh, that's also an advantage of writing essays for Ripperologists is you can expand on something in an article and then condense it in your book and refer readers back to the article if, if they want to learn more. And uh, But yes, you, you ask a good question, and you're not the first to ask me. You know, um, But one, I did not have an ulterior motive when I came up with this book of, of ooh, I'm arguing, for, I'm, I'm arguing for Legrand without actually mentioning him. That's not true at all. I'm totally prepared for this to lead somewhere else. But the reality is... If you uh, if, and the what I want from a reader is not to come away saying Tom Tom has sold, I don't want to convince them I've sold the case. Uh, what I want them to do is is read it and go, man, you know Tom was was fair with me as a reader. He was honest with me, and I feel like I got more than my money's worth out of his book. I learned new things, and and I can at least uh, I can trust his motives, even if I don't agree with everything he says. And and that's how I approach this. Now here's the thing. Charles Legrand was involved in the exact same criminal activities as the uh, landlords, or the, the men I call the Lords of Spitalfields. Uh, Charles Legrand was uh, one of the, he was hired on as the you know he worked for George Lusk uh, as a detective, private investigator with the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. One of the reasons he would have been hired was his familiarity with the East End. So clearly, Legrand had a presence in the East End prior to the murders. So. Uh, I think it is. It would be a remarkable if he could have achieved this without having come to know John McCarthy, 
John Satchel, etc. Um, however, it's kind of like Darwin. I'm not a personally a big believer in Darwin's theory that we came from apes because, you know, the missing link. That that keeps me from being a believer. Where's that missing link? Where Where is it? And it's just like here. I don't have a document that says Charles Legrand knew John McCarthy or something to that effect. Um, so I can't say that. What I do know is Pearly Pole disappears from the scene and, and then uh, uh, the double event happens. And instead of Pearly Pole showing up to throw the investigation off track, Charles Legrand shows up and throws that investigation off track. Uh, that, I, that, is, that is fact. Uh, and uh, however, um, you know, was he just an you know just an opportunist? Was you know what was going on there, or was he covering for himself? Um, you know, I have my own ideas, uh, and those will be explored in the book. Do I think it's possible that Legrand was maybe stalwart man with the Parley Paul in uh, a churchyard? Absolutely, or Church Street. Of course, it's possible. Uh, it's equally possible. It was a one of the McCarthy's boxers, uh, you know, or uh, it was William Granger. It was Kosminski. Uh, it, it, it was certainly not M.J. Druitt. It was certainly not Francis Tumblety. Uh, it was certainly not George Chapman. I do think my research, uh, if, if you read my book and you think it's credible and that we're on the trail of the actual assassins, then, um, then that by itself eliminates an awful lot of suspects. But it doesn't eliminate them all. It does not eliminate Kosminski, uh, who, who intrigues me. Um, it does not eliminate William Granger. It, it absolutely does not eliminate Charles Legrand. Um, and uh, but having so, so while the problem with this is, is these are criminals we're talking about, you know, and they didn't take out an ad in the paper to announce their next criminal activity. So you're not going to find a written trail for 99 percent of the stuff they did. If they happen to get arrested together, as we were very fortunate that some did, so we have this evidence. Um, but if not, then there is no paper trail. There's likely not going to be the, a discoverable link between them, and that's unfortunate. I hope there is out there, but it's very doubtful. So in the end, if I'm going to argue that Charles Legrand was operating in, in, you know, in tandem with the Lords of Spitalfields, I'm entering the realm of conjecture, and that's all it is, and that means, and that's no stronger an argument than any other author has put forth. But we have to, so instead, what I would ask a reader to do is just look at all the different pieces. If they come away thinking the Lords of Spitalfields look guilty for these earlier murders, and they come away thinking Charles Legrand uh, looks pretty good for some of these later murders, then, then they might uh, consider the possibility that they are, in fact, all related. Um, and But it's important for me to say I'm personally not convinced that of anybody's guilt. I, I'm not convinced. I think Charles Legrand's an exciting character. I think he's important to our understanding of the investigation as it happened, police opinion, this and that, um, the connections he had to uh, certain, uh, you know, people like Sir Robert Anderson, uh, Melville McNaughton, um, the Times newspaper. All of these things uh, are potentially explosive, especially if he were ever publicly accused of being the Ripper. And, and he was tucked away instead in prison and put away and silenced up. And all of these things are very fascinating. You know, the future of Ripperology is, is interesting. I, I intend to be a part of it. Um, 
And I do believe that anything I put out, uh, I'm only going to do so because I believe it's worth reading. And I, I would ask every author to, 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 you know, to use the same judgment um, when putting, because you are taking people's money and also their time. You're also influencing uh, opinion and thought, and, and that takes, uh, I believe, consideration. That doesn't mean we should all take ourselves so seriously. This is fun. Um, we are detectives. We're armchair detectives. We're not just taking on Jack the Ripper, you understand. We're taking on the great Scotland Yard. They failed to catch their man. Uh, some of us are ludicrous enough to believe we can succeed 125 years later where they failed. Uh, you know, that's just absolutely preposterous, but it's fun. It's an intellectual pursuit. It's a historical pursuit. It's a Dan Brown novel brought to life from the comfort of our living rooms. Ripperology is all of these things. Um, and uh, so I, I see it continuing very uh, healthily and, and stealthily into the future again with the advent of online databases and how more and more of these will, will be coming to us for us to find new things and put the pieces together. I just want to do my part and uh, uh, separating the wheat from the chaff as much as I can and creating um, a, a path where someone, if, a researcher, if they chose to follow it, they don't feel that they're following a ghost or a dead end, but something that could actually um, lead to fruition. You know, get us, I think this book, Bank Holiday Murders, gets us closer to the truth than we have ever been before. Um, but we're so far from all the way there. I don't put a knife in anyone's hands. I make suggestions here and there. Uh, there are a number of suspicious individuals that I think should be looked at closer. Charles Legrand is, is only one of those, only one of those individuals. Um, and other researchers uh, are looking into some of the others right now. I think if you look at uh, the person, uh, look at my Marianne Austin chapter, look at the person who most likely killed her. He was in his 20s in 1888. He was living in the East End. Um, let's look at him. Let's look at him. You know, John McCarthy, let's keep looking at him. Uh, Aaron Kosminski, uh, where does he fit in? I don't know. I don't know, but somebody thought he fit in there. You know, the, a few people back then thought he, he could fit in here, and he could have. He, he could uh, have, have had a Where did he live? I don't know. You know, he, I'm thinking a guy like him probably stayed in some lodging houses. Um, he was, you know, someone like him could have been easily influenced by someone like McCarthy or Satchel and made to, to do things, um, you know, or encouraged to do things, especially if he had any sort of uh, psychopathic bent, uh, you know. So uh, there, there's a number of people we should look at. I, what I would like to know is who are the who are the men in Pearly Paul's life. You know, let's look closer to the people in the circle of these lodging house keepers who may have been in their 20s or 30s at the time. Did they have a subsequent criminal career? Um, did they have... Because uh, one advantage we have of, over the police of 1888 is we can look back and find out what happened in 89, 90, 91, 1910. They couldn't do that, but we can we can find out if any of these people who might not have been suspicious in 1888 suddenly showed up attacking women or killing women or anything years later. And then we, we can put them in, into the proper historical context that way. And so that's what I think the future of, of Ripperology will be. Uh, we will also have our, our, our um, fringe theorists. Those are uh, you know, an inescapable and possibly necessary part 
of the scene. They attract attention, and, and you know, I mean, uh, the casebook is only created because Stephen P. Ryder became interested in the diary, which which is a hoax. Uh, I state that as a fact. Some will tell me it's not a fact. I believe it is, but uh, that's what brought him in. So many other ripperologists uh, from an older generation were, were brought in because of Stephen Knight's fanciful tale of the royal conspiracy theory in the 70s, which, which you know, of course, now no one believes in. But, boy, did it bring a lot of people in. Uh, Patricia Cornwell's Walter Sickert theory, which, again, not popular. You know, we, we've cast that aside. Uh, but, boy, did she get a lot of publicity. She got her book out there. She got the name Jack the Ripper that attracted people. My former editor, Dan Norder, got interested uh, he was editor of Ripper Notes, the, the third editor, I believe, and he uh, got interested because of Cornwell. So these things serve their purpose. You know, when the Van Gogh Ripper book eventually comes out, maybe it will, maybe it won't, um, that's sure to get talked in the press and get people laughing, but it's going to, somebody is going to see that and go, what is this Ripper thing all about? What is, you know, Van Gogh? Could it really be him? Let me look at this. And that person will be our next Chris Scott. Uh, that person will be our next Keith Skinner. Uh, that person will be our next Deborah Aretha. And uh, so uh, they have their place in Ripperology. As for me, I'm just gonna gonna stick with uh, with what I know and 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 trying to to expand on that and and see if I can't change my mind a few more times before I'm done. Well, you had, you had mentioned just a few minutes ago uh, how fun. Ripperology is uh, as well as you know it, it being a serious study, and I just want to say after ten years, let's say, of me following your writings both on the internet and in the journals, um, it was extremely fun being able to speak to you for the first time, and I'm sure our listeners will be thrilled to be able to hear you as well. Those who have been accustomed just to reading your written word and in your book, um, so I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak to you on the podcast well i i you know what i it's a it's my honor uh, mingus the merciless uh, that you you would have me on your uh, you know near legendary program now <laughs> and, uh you know but i want to let let people know who are listening to this uh if you haven't or if you don't already have my book or you're just learning about it for the first time <clears throat> It's called The Bank Holiday Murders, The True Story of the First Whitechapel Murders, uh, written by Tom Westcott. And, and I've published it at this time exclusively through Amazon. Uh, you can, uh, you know, Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, .ca, wherever you live in, in the great world, you can get this. It's in paperback and on Kindle. Um, if you purchase, if you're a paper person and you purchase the paperback, you can come back later and purchase the uh, Kindle edition at a reduced price. Um, I, I, I did that because I personally, uh, there's a lot of Ripper books that I own both in paper and on Kindle because Kindle's word searchable, and that makes for a researcher, man, that's awesome. So uh, anyways, I uh, hope you enjoy the book, and uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me at uh, Howard Brown's JTR Forums, uh, dot com and Stephen P. Ryder's casebook.org. And hopefully you'll be hearing me again here on RipperCast. And that was RipperCast, a one-on-one interview with Tom Westcott, the author of The Bank Holiday Murders. I want to thank Tom again for being on the show. 
We are a podcast that periodically records, but when we do so, we're available on the iTunes Music Store in the podcast section under Rippercast, and we are hosted and available for download and stream by the good folks over at www.casebook.org. I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.